Welcome. I am your host, Manpreet, aka MMA Lock of the Night, and your boy on Twitter at MMA LOTN. Joined as always by my guy, Cody Saftik. You guys can follow him at CJ Saftik on Twitter. And we are here propping you up for UFC 264, headlined by the trilogy match between Conor McGregor and Dustin Poirier. They got a they got something to settle, and they're definitely gonna settle it this weekend. Cody, what's your level of excitement from one to ten? Just on the main event alone. Just the main event. How excited are you for the main event? You know what? Not any more than a regular fight. I mean, it's big stakes. It's a high-profile guys. It's a good fight, but we see good fights all the time. And I mean, we watch a lot of fights, dude. So it, not as much excited for one particular fight as just like a night of you know momentum for the UFC and the promotion. There's a lot of people that will correlate their very first memory nowadays, right? Obviously, not so much the older fans, but a lot of people will watch their very first fight ends up being a Conor McGregor fight. So you want to be this big, this big event that has uh, you know all the extra media attention, but I'll be honest, man. A couple years back, you'd be like, yo, Conor McGregor's fighting. All the boys getting together. Throwing down right? a party, getting to kick ass, right? And then yeah. it was like, yo, man, he's fighting Floyd Mayweather. All the boys getting together. He's fighting Khabib Nurmagomedov. All the boys getting together. Even the Donald Cerrone fight. Yeah. Guys got together. You know, the last Poirier fight, sick. I, I'm I'm struggling to get people interested in this fight. In terms of, like, my fan, my friends, you know, like my you know, buddies that uh, might want to go to a Sega beach on a Saturday. Might want to go. <laughs> might want to go do something else on a Saturday. It's like, hey guys, Conor McGregor fight. Not that same level of interest, but he seems super motivated. Clearly, he's a businessman. Clearly, he's a smart guy. He's an entertainer. He's it's all about that money. But if it's going to be all about the money, the performances got to catch up. The perform the performances got to speak for themselves. So what I am excited about is a motivated Conor McGregor to come out here and put on a spectacle, whether he wins or loses. That'll be fun. But, uh, yeah, he, he, he needs a big win here to get kind of that momentum back in him, that fanfare back there, and to be that big megastar that he was always for the company. I absolutely agree. Like, I was taking a little bit of shit on Twitter because I'm like, I'm just not a, as jacked as I normally am for a McGregor fight. And I don't know if it's because we just saw him fight Poirier six months ago or, like, especially with such a definitive ending. Like, if there's a split decision or a draw or something like that, I think people will be clamoring more to see it. But... Yeah, I don't know. I'm more excited for Wonderboy versus Burns, to be honest, because that's a fresh matchup. We haven't, you know, seen Burns go up against this type of opponent before. Wonderboy's on the cusp of another title shot when everybody thinks he's washed, especially after getting knocked out by Anthony Pettis a couple fights ago, right? So I just want to see that puzzle solve way more than I want to see this McGregor Emporia one. But again, I might get some hate for that. Uh, I'm glad that you're kind of on my side a little bit in terms of not being as stoked as uh, you normally would be for, for a big Conor McGregor fight. But we know McGregor brings in the eyeballs, brings in the dollars, and that's what uh, matters to the UFC at the end of the day. But what we're trying to do is get some dollars in your pocket. And that's why you guys are tuning in with us on a Thursday evening for propping you up. Um, yeah, I guess no real, uh, nothing to set up here other than make sure you guys like, subscribe, do all that type of stuff. And then obviously go out there and follow uh, Cody's uh, YouTube channel as well, which is in the link below. All right, let's get this thing going because we've got 13 fights that we got to get through. And first and foremost seems to be the talk of the town on MMA, MMA Twitter. We got Alan Hamadovsky versus Yazong Hu. And in terms of odds, we got uh, minus 130 on Hamadovsky, plus 110 on Hu. But Hugh originally was plus 155. So there is some action coming in on him and this tough this fight's a, a tough one to kind of crack right both guys have been out of the cage for a while you got Abadovsky outside of the cage for almost two years now uh after that loss to John Phillips giving John Phillips his only ever win inside the UFC and then Yuzong Hu coming off a three-year layoff uh he had a 10-month USADA suspension mixed in there as well but now here he is at the weight class he probably should be at at 185 pounds obviously we know he made his debut against Cyril Asker at heavyweight short notice gassed out within four minutes got choked out in the second round 
Then the Rashad Coulter fight comes down a weight class, still has some issues dealing with the strength of Rashad Coulter in certain situations, has some bright spots of his own, but still doesn't really show which, what kind of potential he truly has, especially being 23 years old at that time. Now he's 26 years old, has some time over there at Tiger Muay Thai, has some time over there at uh, the UFC Shanghai PI as well. And he looks in great shape based on some of the pictures that I've been seeing. So you can definitely tell he's coming down to 185 the correct way. Now, the issue that I have with a lot of people picking who to win this fight is it's all potential based it's nothing that we've really seen on seen on tape to be like this is why i'm picking him to beat amadovsky he's shown a couple things here and there in the culture fight but like nothing that jumps out of the page that you're like i gotta fucking get this plus money on uh, on who here uh with amadovsky on the other hand came undefeated to the ufc uh has that uh grapple fuck fest against christoph jotko and then goes out there and gives john phillips the fight that he needs to win 14 seconds knocks his ass out uh, shows the worst fight IQ you could possibly show in that fight. Uh, and now he's coming back. He's training at Extreme Couture, it seems like. Has some time over there in Bulgaria as well, where his home gym is. Um, I still, again, if you're betting on Amadovsky, it's almost potential as well. Like, all he shows in his past fight is he likes to knock, people, knock people's heads into the third row. Uh, has some decent jujitsu off of his back in his regional fights, but he was nowhere to be found against Christoph Jotko. Uh, personally, I'm banking more so on the potential of who, who uh, and I think that he's going to put on, like, a, just an overall MMA clinic here, grab some takedowns, some clinch time, maybe outstrike Amadovsky, which I think he will be able to, but he needs to make sure that his cardio is good, something that we haven't truly seen uh and obviously uh you know his wrestling which it looks like based on the ig is something that he's working uh a lot on so long story short i'm taking who and i'm actually going to be taking him by by decision at plus 475 i think both of these guys are going to go out there and just grapple fuck each other and just try to find that uh find their, their their advantages and their opportunities to kind of control their opponents amdowski will more than likely be trying to take his head off but with yazong i think he's going to try to you know stay away from that big power and slow this fight down as much as possible but no real confidence on that spot uh do you have a stronger feeling on this shit show of a matchup this dumpster fire of a matchup no, I'm not super confident, but I do agree with the assessment that uh, we all believe that who probably made the improvements that he needed to between the last time. The funny thing is, is that who's coming off of two year plus long, uh, long layoff. So is Alan Amadovsky. No one's talking about as Alan Amadovsky potentially made any yeah. improvements. No, no, that's not even a narrative <laughs> at all. It's whether this 23 year old Chinese kid made any improvements. He's 26 now. And to me, that's the big difference. You got Alan Amadovsky leaves as a 31 year old. He's limited. We get that. Coming back as a 33-year-old, I, I, I'm not expecting any new tricks out of him. Whereas with Yao Zinhu, it's like, okay, he, he was a very green prospect. I don't even know if I would call him a prospect. He was 3-0 when the UFC signed him. Those three wins, my God, how do you get a UFC yeah. contract? Now admit, he fights once at heavyweight, fights once at 205, like you're saying, and now he has this long layoff. But, but I will admit, like you said, it's all narrative. What can we go off of? One thing that I will admit from the Rashad Coulter fight is like, this kid looks durable. If anything, it looks like he can take a punch. I mean, Coulter absolutely teed off on. At one point, I was like, I thought I was watching live fights. It looked like a Rashad Coulter uh, hitting the heavy bag in his home gym. Like, he was just teeing off on him. <laughs> and who took everything, right? And so this goes back to these long lands and these guys that are no good. But look at the Nick Negamariani, right? This guy is awful, but he yeah. looks durable. He looks durable. <laughs> but he doesn't show you anything. He takes a two-and-a-half long layoff. He comes back. There's a little bit more there, certainly more there. Claudio Puelas. And you were actually on that Puelas side over Jordan Levy. But, like, yeah. what has Claudio Puelas shown in his career? But he's a young guy, and he takes some time off, and he comes back and still shit. But good <laughs> enough to beat Jordan Levy. Yargis Danho. My God. Awful. And I mean awful. Three years off. 
Thomas Back, Sleeps Jorgen DeCastro. Rick Glenn was already a well-rounded martial artist, but again, that goes to speak to almost three years off. You know, hip surgery, newborn baby child, plumbing job in Iowa. Whoa. And, and then comes out and, and dices a guy in 28 seconds in Joaquin Silva. So again, the layoff, a lot of these guys make improvements. And in his case, the UFC signs him to fight in this China card, Gaston versus Bisping. They, they, we need these Chinese fighters. They want to open up the demographic. They throw him, not to the wolves, but he can't even fight the, the bottom echelon. And instead of releasing him, and instead of this guy going in experience on the Chinese regional scene, or any regional scene for that matter, they keep him under contract. And that to me tells me that they're like, okay, you know what, we'll give you time. You go build, go to Tiger Muay Thai, add your skills, and when your coaching staff is ready, then, uh, then we'll take the chance on you. UFC Shanghai as well, they opened up that. The guys that have been fighting out of that performance as a dude have been doing uh, no good, right? So don't <laughs> yeah. let that fool you. But there is a clear narrative that the UFC is trying to get these guys in. And in the case of Alan Amandovsky, if there was a winnable fight for who, it would be this guy. He's 0-2 in the UFC. He may have chin issues. He may have durability issues. He may have takedown defense issues. He is an absolute headhunter, but I don't know that he can do that for three straight rounds. And so that becomes whose toughness. The only thing we've seen from him could actually be his key here, right? Because when you look at Alan Amandowski, not that he's got bad wins, man. Will Flurry, that's a legit little knockout win. Ibrahim Mane, legit knockout win. But almost all of these regional show fights, knocking these guys out. So if he goes out there and tees off on who? A guy that was getting teed off by Rashad Coulter, a 205-er, and a former pro boxer. A guy that fought at heavyweight and, uh, you know, got submitted. But again, Cyril, Cyril Asker, for all of his faults, the judo brown belt, BJJ purple belt, had a, a much more advanced skill set and is a legitimate heavyweight. So if we're giving him excuses, then he's live in the spot. Because he was plus money, I just fanned it as the Dodger pass. But you, my friend, you and I talk about props. So the way I looked at this one was the, the under 2.5, a minus 150, looked pretty good to me. Listen, Alamanovsky swings bombs. Then those bombs catch you, even if you are a durable guy. Yeah, you know, theoretic. Nick Negamariano, oh, oh, he took some shots. He stood up yeah. to them, but he still did get hit. I can see who getting hit, you know, if, if he wins this fight, he needs to take those shots, take Alamanovsky down. Like you mentioned, slow this pace down. But him versus Rashad Coulter, in fact, he gets outstruck something like 98 to 92. Like, he is throwing back. He's just outgunned. Three years later, bigger guy, in shape, better skills to come back to the octagon with. I, I think he could finish Alan Namadovsky. I think Alan Namadovsky could finish him. So that under 2.5 maybe covers you on both sides. It's minus 150. I want to get greasy with this thing, though. That uh, Yao Zong inside the distance, plus two, 200. More specifically, Yao Zong by TKO at plus 250. You know, this is 15 minutes to work with. This kid comes back as a bigger... He's going to be the bigger man, right? He's shown that he can go 15 minutes. I, I don't know. If you're buying into the narrative that he's going to come back even just a bit better, well, then Alan Amadovsky as a, as a natural middleweight could be in some issues. So just in terms of like a pawn, it's a big plus money thing. I can see that Yao Zong 250 at plus... Or uh, the Yao Zong TKO at plus 250 being a, a decent option. But more so, to cover you on both sides, I just don't think this thing's going the distance. So under 2.5, uh, minus 150. Again, we're like Jekyll and Hyde over here, usually picking the unders, and this guy's fucking picking the under on me while I'm picking the I got a lot over. of overs. I, I got a lot of overs we'll get to, my friend. But for this one, we've yeah. got 0-2 Chinese prospect versus 0-2 yeah. Macedonian prospect. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't go in the distance. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll see how it shakes out. It's MMA. 
Yeah, for sure. All right, let's move on to the next fight here. We got Zalgas Zumagulov going against uh, Jerome Rivera. I believe Zumagulov is the second biggest favorite that we have on the card behind Sean O'Malley, of course. Uh, but this is a tough one, I think. This is going to be a little bit closer than the line indicates. And I find it hilarious because this is the biggest uh, underdog that Jerome Rivera has been in his four UFC fights. But I think it's going to be you know the closest one out of all of them. Like Zalgas Zumagulov, uh, mo most notably, is kind of a point fighter, right? Like you don't really see many finishes on his record uh, if you go back to two, 2017 that's the only time he got to finish as of late and then you got to go even earlier on into his career to find any other finishes that he has but as of late it's just volume punching you know stay in front of the, his opponent's face maybe land a couple of takedowns here and there but it's more so a point of fighting style with uh jerome rivera that's kind of kind of his style in a sense right he has volume he has output he has a versatile uh you know set of skills in terms of his uh striking can punch can kick can elbow knee all that type of stuff i thought he was putting on a great performance in his first round against tyson nam you know th but that's tyson nam right I, I used to call him like the the forever buffering fighter who's just waiting to get that fucking knockout punch and uh you know jerome rivera did a good job in staying away from the big punch in that first round unfortunately he ran into it in the second round but uh again that that's just how jerome rivera fights but the Francisco Figueredo fight, though, he just couldn't get anything going there. Like, he was outpowered in that fight, uh, you know, just slipped up a couple times. And then in his next fight against uh, Ode Osborne, no time to even get started. Osborne just clocks him, and the fight's over. Here with Zalgas, I don't think he has much power to worry about. So I don't think that there's much of a knockout threat for him to have to worry about. So he should be free to go out there and kind of just uh, get his striking game going, you know, the, the way that he wants to start matching that output and that volume of Zalgas. So I'm not running to the betting window right now to parlay Zalgas and a bunch of my, 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 on my tickets or anything like that, because I do think that this fight is going to play out much closer than the odds actually indicate. Now, all week I've been saying, you know, if I'm forced to bet this fight, I would probably bet Jerome Rivera by decision at plus 550-ish. I thought that there's some great value there as this will be a close fight. But I ultimately do think that Zalgas still wins this fight. How does he win it, though? Historically speaking, it's going to be by decision. So the two plays that I'm saying, if you're going to chase either guy, is probably a decision. I'd be surprised if either guy gets a finish here. The last thing I'll say about Jerome Rivera... This could be one of those Jin Yu Fry moments, right? Where they're, uh, uh, they haven't gotten a win inside the UFC. People are just completely overlooking them, just saying, this guy sucks. This guy's garbage. There's a reason Zumaco loves a minus 300, but he could surprise you. He could surprise you. So I, I'd be very wary in terms of having too much exposure on Zalgas here. So in terms of uh, props, so like we say, uh, Rivera by decision plus 560. I'm going to take a bit of a sprinkle on that. And then uh, Zumagulov by decision is minus 115, as would be expected. So if you're confident on Zumagulov, fuck the minus 300. Take that minus 115. Uh, but if you even think Rivera has an inkling of a hope, I would take that plus 560 on Rivera by decision. And that's exactly what I'm going to do. How do you see this one uh, going down? Yeah, to be honest, I got mixed feelings about this one. Because on one hand, I'm a huge Zalga Zumagulov fan. Like, outside of that, probably the biggest robbery I've ever seen outside of Ross Pearson, Diego Sanchez, or maybe, like, Kevin Randleman versus Boss Rudin back in the day. Him versus Tagir Ulumbekov. Like, how does he get his hand raised in that fight? That was so sketchy, bro. <laughs> Dude, he got taken down 19 times. How do you possibly win a fight? But it's in Kazakhstan. He's from Kazakhstan. I get it. I get it um but it, i'm a fan favorite this guy's a fan favorite to me he goes out there he swings bombs from the hip side he's got a very very odd awkward style hard to get a read on he's got solid takedown defense he's got five round cardio he's got a cast iron chin but similar in ways in this way to uh rowdy barcellos who seriously let me down the two weeks ago by the way i can't get the three for three on the props man i know the two for brother three, two i know for three almost every time 
Okay, yeah. we got Kenny and Jakku versus Daniel Marcus. They hit the over one and a half. We're cool. Tanner Bozer gets a TKO of all things, plus 250. Barcellus lets me down. The reason I have to bring him up one more time, I swear, I don't want to talk about him ever again. Uh, it's like if there was if there was a fault on him, it's like he's a he's a slow starter. Man. He's a slow mm-hmm. starter. He doesn't quite do enough, and at times it's just too close. So betting him as an underdog, yeah, all day, right? He's got an advanced skill set. This is a guy that debuted in the UFC and had already fought in legitimate competition. Was a legitimate five round flyweight champion over in Russia. Whether he robbed a guy or not, he robbed a pretty decent prospect in Tagir Ulambekov. So. You know, he, he's fighting at a high level. You're going to get plus money on him, which you did against Roly on Pava. A fight, yeah. I thought he won, but he didn't. He, he, didn't, he didn't give a decision. Then, cool, you're, you're cool with betting him plus money. When you start betting him as a favorite, the problem is that his style leads to close fights. And then you need the judges to side with you on those fights. In the Roly on Pava fight, I thought he outworked him, and he mixed in a little bit of grappling. But they, they didn't agree, right? His last time out against Albazi, it was a lot more clear cut for Albazi. But again, he just allowed Albazi to start his combinations every time, allowed him to get off first, you know, let him let him lead the dance the entire time, and then no real sense of urgency. I think because he fights these five round fights, in his mind, it's like, oh, I'll, I'll build some momentum. And that third round against Pava, it's his best round for sure. But it's only a three rounder, dude. You got to get going a little bit sooner. And so yes, Jerome Rivera is a bit of a quicker starter. <clears throat> He's got some fast hands, decently fast hands. His striking is going to be a lot more, you know, straight and linear. So he's going to beat him with a punch a few times. And it's whether Zalgus is going to be out there to go out there and break him. I think Zalgus gets the job done. I think he does succeed in breaking him at some point. But for a 3-1 to one price tag on a guy that has lost his last two fights in the UFC and has a style that leads to decisions, has a style that leads to close decisions, you don't really want to get in that market of betting these guys at 3-1 to one and then losing a split decision and being all upset about it. Because, again, that's something that could happen. Uh, Jerome Rivera to a lot lesser extent, like you mentioned, Ginyu Frey, but Bruno Santos, not not big old middleweight Bruno Santos, but little flyweight. He's the same way, right? Yeah. He's 0-3 in the UFC. His case, he had given a really good account of himself. Jerome Rivera... Bruno Silva, maybe, sorry. Bruno yeah, Silva. Bruno Silva, yeah. In, yeah. in Jerome Rivera's case, maybe not quite as well. He did do good in that first Tyson Nam, or the, the first round before getting knocked out. But, I mean... I thought he lost that fight on Contender Series, perfectly honest. Didn't mm-hmm. think he won. Thought he got... Thought that was a robbery decision in his case, but whatever. I like the kid. It's all good. His two other big spots prior to that, he had fought Roberto Sanchez and got easily submitted, and he fought Brendan Royval, dislocated his elbow 40 seconds in. So the two times he stepped up, he faltered. He's on Contender Series. I thought he lost, taken down twice, controlled a little bit. They give him the win, and now he's gone 0-3 in the UFC. So with that Contender Series fight, which didn't look good... There's just not enough for me to bite on. And the last thing I will mention, because I will admit, we'll talk about props here. The uh, I wanted fight goes the distance, right? Minus 200, not quite enough there. I am going to side with Zumagulov, and so that Zumagulov was uh, minus 120 by decision, so that that is what I ended up going with. But if I can play devil's advocate and why I don't love that, like you said, he's a decision guy. Zumagulov's a decision guy. But shit, man, look at the guys he's fighting. Yeah. So Amir Albazi is a legit Swedish prospect. This kid looks like he's got the goods and will probably go far in the division. Rolian Peva is a beast. You know, That's putting true. this guy out, absolutely good luck. Ali Bogatinov, Tabir Ulambekov, Tyson Nam. Tyson Nam is also one of these guys who's a really slow starter, but goddamn, you don't question his durability because the guy is cast iron. You know, even this, um, he's a British fighter, uh, Shabdil Hank. He, he had four pro losses coming into that fight. He had never been finished to that point, right? He got finished his most recent fight, first time ever. But again, it's like it's not for lack of effort, you know what I mean? He's been fighting high-end guys, and those fights, generally five rounds where you're going to pace yourself a little more, those go tend to go the distance. 
he chucks one of them overhand bombs, and you've seen him do it, dude. He, he throws <laughs> bombs. If he lands Jerome Rivera flush on the chin with one of them bombs, it's not going to be another decision fight. It's going to be a TKO win. And it's a big plus money play, play on a Zumagula by TKO. I think Paul Shaughnessy he mentioned it as one of these pun-style plays. Most people don't see it coming. But just like a Ilya Tapura, who we'll talk about later, just because he doesn't show knockouts don't mean he can't get them. And you can hit a big plus money tag on it. So if you want to play devil's advocate, is he a decision guy? Sure, against elite level competition. Is Jerome Rivera an elite level competition? Does Jerome Rivera look like he's got a, a good chin like some of the rest of these guys? No, no. So as far as styles make fights go, maybe he does get off to a slow start. But if he puts that same pressure that he that he puts on other guys, you know, the later the fight goes, he might be able to crack the code, get the victory. So as much as the official play that I've written down would be a Zuma Gulov minus 120, I love it because I do see that TKO is a, is a possible factor. Yeah, that's something you definitely have to worry about is the the durability of Rivera in the spot and whether he'll be able to take one of those shots. Um, all right, let's move on to the next fight here. We got uh, Omari Akhmadov going up against Brad Tavares. Clear as day in terms of how to break down this fight. You got Omari, who's going to be stat spamming takedowns, and then you got Tavares, who wants to keep this fight vertical and get his striking going. Now, the one fight that a lot of people have been kind of pointing to when breaking this fight down is... Brad Tavares against Yoel Romero seven years ago, where uh, Yoel Romero landed seven takedowns on the man and was able to uh, take home a victory. But uh, you're, you're not giving him the benefit of the doubt here, right? Like, you got to be like, that was seven years ago. That was Brad Tavares, again, seven years ago. Uh, and that was Yoel, Rivero, Yoel Romero seven years ago. I believe Yoel Romero seven years ago is better than the Omar Yakhmetov in 2021. So I don't think we have that much to worry about. Now, don't get me wrong. I do think that Omar Yakhmetov will hit takedowns here. But I do think that he's going to struggle in terms of keeping Tavares down. Now, I think that it will be easiest for him in that first round, as always. But after that, I think he's going to start to struggle in terms of trying to get Tavares down, who's a big boy. That's one thing that's always uh, kind of overlooked with Tavares. He's a big dude for a middleweight. Not to mention, very underrated takedown defense as well, right? That's something that a lot of people don't really take into consideration. Again. Antonio Carlos Jr., not the greatest takedown artist. Great jiu-jitsu, don't get me wrong, but uh, as we saw in this fight against Brad Tavares, there was, he was kind of struggling at times to truly assert his dominance in those positions when he was getting uh, the grappling exchanges going, which I do think that uh, Brad Tavares will have similar success in this fight against Omari Akhmedov in terms of kind of keeping him off of him, uh, nullifying the amount of damage that's going to be coming his way when they are in grappling situations. And then getting back into his space and getting back into his rhythm in terms of getting his striking off and uh, kind of really damaging uh, Akhmedov. Akhmedov, the one thing that I've always been trying to like hammer for the past several years is hitting that round three prop against him, but his fucking noggin just does not want to go to sleep or anything like that. And then obviously, more often than not, he'll pull off the victory too. So I'm not chasing round three props against fucking Omar Akhmedov anymore, especially not with a guy like Brad Tavares, who's not notoriously a finisher either. So I'm going to be going with Brad Tavares in this spot. I think he's going to be able to outstrike Omari over at least two rounds out of the three here, and he should be able to take home a decision victory. And in terms of props, we're talking about Tavares, uh, you know, winning by decision. That's currently sitting at plus 140. Love that line. Even the uh, the over two and a half at minus 235, if you're kind of stumped on which side is going to win, that's not a bad parlay piece. If you want to throw in a minus 235 over two and a half, I think that's a solid spot. I don't see this fight fitting inside, finishing inside the distance either. Akhmedov grapple-fucking him, smothering him with no real chance to really uh, finish him. Him submitting Tom Breeze was more so Tom Breeze giving up on himself. Let's be honest. Within the first fucking 30 seconds, he's pulling guard and jumping guillotine on Omari Akhmedov. 
amount of flus probably seen that guillotine thousands of times in the past. Yeah, no uh, neck. Yeah, that's another thing. What are you trying to grab, man? Exactly. All he feels is fucking chin. That's all yeah, he feels. Yeah. Uh, With a beard on it too. It's like, oh. <laughs> exactly. And then he slips right out of it, right? So, uh, yeah, I do like Tavares. Tavares by decision. How are you seeing this fight go down, brother? Yeah, I actually see it pretty much the same way. I mean, it's a it's a it's a style clash, big time. You got the grappler yeah. Nakamura versus the striker and Brad Tavares. Nakamura not really much of a finisher. He loves to wing that overhand right, but hasn't knocked out anybody since Perpetua or Manny Perpetua, like wow. nine, nine years ago. <laughs> nine years ago, right? And dude, he was rocked before Perpetua yeah. blindly ran in for the kill and got countered with an overhand right. Yeah. Uh, Brian Ambersall hurt his knee. Outside of that, like the power is just not quite there. The submission game, yeah, he submitted Breeze, but honestly, I the submission game not really there. He's one of these guys that's going to grind you into oblivion and win a decision with his wrestling. Whereas Brad Tavares, not really big on the power himself, but he's going to keep his fight standing. And uh, he's a pretty precise striker. He's not an elite-level striker. Like, you see what happens when he when he takes on guys that are, you know, more striking specialists. Israel Adesanya, give him a pass. You know, he, he's the best middleweight in the world. Uh, with Chabazian, like, Chabazian's really young, man. He caught Tavares pretty clean. We have seen Tavares also, like, uh, Tim Boach back in the day. Like, you can cause a firefight. You can hit this guy. You can't hit him clean. But in terms of a generalist, he's an excellent general. He's a solid striker. He's solid counter-wrestling. Uh, offensive wrestling, he never uses. Jiu-Jitsu, you don't really see him use it, although I believe he's a brown belt, maybe even a black belt. He's been in extreme couture for 10 years. He's now yeah. 33 years old. But again, he's a guy that has a very well-rounded skill set. Where he's going to run into trouble is anybody in the top 10. Anybody in the top 15, for that matter, right? Uh, I wouldn't say anybody in the top 15, but... These top 10 guys, they're going to be better strikers than them. They're going to be better wrestlers than them. They'll hit them. They'll hurt them. They've got the more experience. They've got all these assets, right? What he proved in the Antonio Carlos Jr. fight is, yo, his takedown defense is pretty legit. It is for real. And if he can keep the fight standing, he's going to beat up these non-strikers. Mario Akhmedov is not a striker. He'll wing the overhand right. That's it. He's live or die by the takedown. And so, again, when you look at Akhmedov by the numbers, he took down Tom Breeze twice. Took down Chris Weidman four times, Ian Heinrich twice, Zach Cummings twice. He needs these takedowns in these fights. That's how he's winning them. He, he scores the takedowns. With Brad, you made a point. You know, people are mentioning Yo Romero. Whoa, what do you want to know about Yo Romero, man? He's an Olympic silver medalist and a genetic <laughs> What do you want to know? There's nothing to talk about. What what, what I would uh. rather talk about is shit. Elias Theodoro took him down three times. And if mm. that's going to be the case, then that's a serious problem. But you go back and you rewatch that fight, and it's a key that you actually brought up. Taking him down is one thing, holding him down is an entirely different beast. And that's what he does excellent, is that he works his way back up. And so here's the conundrum with uh, Amari Akhmedov. He needs to be the hammer at all times. He's a very bad nail. Uh, that's why you're trying to hit these third round props. It's like, not only has he blown a couple third rounds before, like the Sergio Marais fight and all that, but uh, even the, the Marvin Vittori fight, he's up two rounds. He gets 10-8 yeah. in the third round. His gas I think the Zaleski no fight too, right? I think he got finished third the round. Wide, the Weidman fight where he's completely yeah. dead dog tired in the third round. I'll bite both of them are. It's like, yeah, he needs to be the hammer. Once you can turn the tide on, not so great. When you look at the run of wins, Tim Boge, Zach Cummings, Ian Heinish, no guy poses any resistance. He takes them down. He holds them down. That's the end of it. Nobody's really working him, causing him to overexert himself. But Armari Akmeno, for as good of his Dagestani wrestling background is, he muscles almost everything. Everything is muscle, muscle, muscle. And so what Brad is going to be able to do is Brad will probably get taken down a few times, but him working up will cause Amari to overexert himself. And then second and third round, when he's not getting those takedowns, Brad's going to chip away at him. So, you know, I can see people bringing up that same third round prop. But like you said, it hasn't been happening lately. Brad's not really a power puncher. I think Brad secures two of these three rounds at the least, wins a 29-28. Plus 140 Brad Tavares by decision. That's something I like. 
I like it as well. Again, I, I fully expect this fight to go to a decision, no matter who ends up winning this fight. I'm over that third-round prop against Omari. I got to find somebody else that I got to hammer for those possible third rounds. I do have a third-round prop that I do want to talk about later on in this say, card. I, I wrote I wrote one down, too. I know you're okay. like talking about that. We might, it might be the same one. If it is, right, we'll let's see. bet it. We're on the same page. <laughs> all, right, all right. We'll see. We'll see. All right. Let's move on to the next fight here. We got uh, Jennifer Mayan, just guy. I talked about round three props that won't hit. This is probably one of them. Uh, in terms of odds, we got minus 185 on Jennifer Aya, plus uh, Jennifer Maya, sorry, and plus 160 on Jessica Aya. And I don't really understand this line at all. I think it's just pretty much, oh, look, Jennifer Maya won one round off the champ. Let's make her a minus 200 favorite now against Jessica Aya. Now, I have this theory that, like, I feel as though women in this flyweight division, there's Valentina Shevchenko, and now obviously Tatiana Suarez has thrown her name into that. She's going to be in the uh, flyweight division as well, so she'll probably be up there. But I feel like it's uh, 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 Valentina Shevchenko, and then a the huge drop off, and then just a chunk of women. Like there's Jennifer Maya, there's Jessica I, there's Rox. Uh, I'd throw Roxanne Rodafuri into it a little bit. <laughs> Lauren Murphy, Andrea Lee, Joanne Calderwood, uh, Catelyn Chukagan, all these women, whenever they fight each other, more than likely, they should be closer to pick them odds. You can throw Cynthia Calvillo into there, but she does okay. have, like, she, she's showing some solid grappling against Jessica in their main event slot. But I feel like all those women should roughly be around pick them, obviously with the exception of the, with a couple matchups, depending on how you match them up. But I fully expect this fight to be a stand-up fight for 15 minutes with both girls throwing out decent level of output and volume. And when it goes to the judges' scorecards, whoever's holding either ticket is going to be like, fuck, I don't know if I want this fight or not. Now people are going to throw into the thing, oh, what if Jennifer Maya takes her down? Look what she did to Valentina Shevchenko. Jennifer Maya has had six UFC fights. She is two of four on takedowns. What makes you think that she is a takedown specialist or wants to take the fight to the ground at all? The reason that fight hit the ground to begin with was Valentina Shevchenko whiffed on a takedown attempt and Jennifer Maya took advantage of it and stayed on top of it. Now, the, there could be an issue regarding what Valentina Shevchenko is truly like off of her back, and Jennifer Maya truly may have exposed that for us, but that's not going to work here against uh, Jessica Aya in terms of implementing a similar type of game plan because that's not what she does. She's a striker. She wants to go out there. She wants to shoot the box style talk for her. That's how she goes out there and gets her game done or gets her game going is just trying to outstrike you, land the better damage. They have a couple similar opponents, one of them being Catelyn Shkagan. And we saw the difference there when Jessica I normally is the first one kind of cutting off the cage, getting her combinations off, and really trying to corral Catelyn Shkagan compared to Jennifer Maya, who was just kind of chasing around the entire time and whiffing at air. Another fight that I want to bring up, Viviane Rougeau against Jessica I. First time Viviane Rougeau's lost inside the UFC. Jen uh, Jessica I, pretty much what she did was what she did in the Catelyn Chikagian fight. Go first, stay in her face, don't really let her get comfortable and get her game going. I think she can do the same thing here against Jennifer Maya in terms of if Jennifer Maya just wants to kickbox, I think Jessica I can match her in terms of volume and output. And if this fight goes to a decision, I'd rather be holding that plus 165 ticket than that minus 185, minus 200 on Jennifer Maya. I like Jessica on the spot, and it hurts me to even say that because I'm always the guy that goes out there and tries to fade her, right? I bet uh, uh, against uh, against her with Cynthia Calvillo. I didn't do it in the jo uh, jo Joanne Calderwood fight, and a lot of people, last thing I'll say about this, and I'll pass it on over to you, the Joanne Calderwood fight. You got Joanne Calderwood getting tapped by Jennifer Maya in a grappling sequence that wasn't initiated by Jennifer Maya. 
Let's note that. And then obviously, uh, Joanne Kellogg goes out there and lands over 150 strikes, I believe, on Jessica I and outpoints her in that fight. That's not how Jennifer Maya fights. She's not a high volume fighter like Joanne Kellogg, who's more more often than not in the 120, 130 range in terms of strikes. So I see this being a striking battle for the majority of 15 minutes, and I'd rather be holding that to Jessica I ticket. And even Jessica I by a decision at plus 265. I think it's a great line too. So I'm going to be on the underdog here and Jessica I, something I thought I'd never say in, in my life, but I have to take advantage of this line here as I do think that there's some solid value on it because I believe it deserves to be a pick -em. And in terms of uh, props, like I said, Jessica I, decision plus 265, that's where my money is going to be going. How do you feel about this one? Uh, yeah, honestly, man, I think like you're right in the sense that it might be just making a dog or pass. It's women's MMA. It's going to decision. In fact, let's bet this thing can go to decision, my friend. No, no, no. Minus 300. Odds makers knows it's going the distance. See, if you know it's going the distance, if you know it's going to be a relatively close competitive fight, why not Why not hold that plus money ticket, as you mentioned? I agree with your assessment pretty much on everything, although I think that Jennifer Maya will mix in a few takedowns, and I think that'll be the difference maker. I, I think, yeah, I will have the output. She probably throws a little bit crisper. She's got that jab. She's got maybe the hand speed, the technical boxing advantage. Uh, I would say that she is a better striker than Jennifer Maya. Maya will have the pressure game. She'll be moving forward. What do the judges like? Do the judges like Jessica I landing jabs off her back foot? Do they like Jennifer Maya closing in the distance and trying to land some more damaging blows? That'll be close. That that I would like the plus money to take it on. But I think Maya at some point switches up the game plan, shoots the takedown, tries to at the very least grind her up against the cage, try to get a hold of her, and try to peel her down. So I's got multiple issues going against her. Namely, she has been taken down in the last four fights, right? She was taken down by Joanne Calderwood, Cynthia Calvillo, Viviana Arroyo, Valentina Shevchenko. You know, elite-level competition. But takedown defense could be potentially a little bit suspect. Even though she's a decent grappler, off her back, there's just not enough there. Maya is a BJJ black belt and extremely heavy on top. So if she just gets two takedowns in this fight, one in the first, one in the second, hopefully, and then we can coast in the third, that, that, to me, should be the difference maker. Now, you bring up a great point. You say Jennifer Maya's two for four in takedowns in the UFC. You know, laughable number. But here's why it's not a laughable number. Her debut is against Liz Carmouche, which you're not going to take down, and she doesn't even try. She attempts zero takedowns. Understandable. Lexus Davis and Roxanne Monteferri, her next two fights, had she chosen to take those fights to the ground, she probably would have been certainly been able to take down Roxanne Monteferri, likely would have been able to take down Lexus Davis. She doesn't shoot takedowns in either of those fights. Now, Caitlin Chukagian, notoriously difficult opponent to take down, hard opponent to track, she goes uh, one for two. So she shoots ta two takedowns, and she manages to get her down. The only other opponent she's ever tried to take down was Shevchenko, in which she attempted two, and she got one. Never attempted to take Calderwood down. So the number two for four, she's only attempted to take down two opponents, Shevchenko and Ch Caitlin Chukagian, and she did manage to take down on both of them. Is she a wrestler? No. Do I expect her to go out there with a singlet on and put on some type of dominating grappling performance on Jessica I? No. But if it's a close fight standing and she's able to mix in a few takedowns or a few, you know, insinuate a few grappling exchanges, to me that would maybe be the better way. Now, now, two to one for, for Jennifer Myatt? No chance. But this thing's going the distance. We agree. The odds maker agrees. So why wouldn't we not take Jennifer Myatt by decision? And that is plus 110, so you can get plus one, plus money out of it. And then, just to quickly shit on Jessica I real quick. <laughs> I know, I know, I know, I know. <clears throat> so you talk about the Vivian Arroyo fight, where it's like, we'll, we'll start from there, because losing to Valentina Shevchenko, oh, no big deal, no big yeah. deal. Didn't even happen. In fact, that's a feather in your cap. So we'll just start her journey since then. She beats Vivian Arroyo, right? But she actually weighs in 131 
for a fucking flyweight fight. 131 for a 126-pound limit. That's a joke, man. That really is a joke. And then she, she missed weight for Calvillo as well, I believe. Exactly. So she follows up a 131 miss with another miss, 126.3. Now that one's critical because she's 0.3 pounds off of making weight. You just missed weight. You know you're in the UFC's bad books. She used to fight at 135 back in the day, fought some yeah. of the best fighters in the division at 135 pounds. 125 was supposed to be easier for her to make. She was a small 35, but it's not. So if she misses weight by 0.3 of a pound, it's a bad look. Then she proceeds to get on the scales, looks awful. Right? Then she proceeds to fight the actual fight itself, and I didn't think look all that good. So now she's competed since then, two grappling matches for su uh, submission underground for Chael Sonnen, in which she's largely neutralized and not ineffective. She lost to Joanne Calderwood in a fight that she was doubled up on the striking numbers and you know didn't really look all herself. She's now 34 years old. She's on a bad run. I can't even trust her to make 125. I can't trust her to make 125 and then be feeling good come fight night. And she just launched an OnlyFans account. So like, I get the plus one sixty five ticket. Like I get, I get that narrative. But like, I don't know. I don't know if I personally want any part of that. So to try to get my two to one to a little bit better, I would take Jennifer Mayo by decision at plus one ten. And if you're the kind of person that doesn't mind those big, you know, three to one, and you want maybe even want to parlay a couple props together, I really think this thing's going the distance. I mean, I think yeah. most people would agree with that assessment. So maybe you can do something with that. But outside of that, I think my, the official play on one of these would be uh, the Maya decision at plus 110. All right. We got a little bit of competition against each other as my equipment is falling off. On me. There we go. There goes the mic stand. So I'm going to have to fix that as soon as I tee up the next one for you. Tee me up, baby. I'm ready to go. <laughs> yeah. All right. But I'll get, I'll, I'll set you up with this next one. Oh, God damn. All right. <laughs> um, next up, we got Drikas Duplessis versus Trevin Giles. This is great because I don't have too many thoughts on this fight. So I'm hoping that you can uh, kind of lead the charge on this one. But quick thoughts, uh, pretty much pick a mods. It seems like some money is coming in on Drikas Duplessis as time is going on. Minus 120 for him. Uh, the way that I saw it, you know, both guys do leave a little bit to be desired in terms of output and volume at times. It seems like they're a little bit lackadaisical in their approach, which obviously isn't that great. The one shining part that I see from either guy is, uh, at least from the Trevin Giles side, that jab is... It's fucking nasty, man. The speed on it, the, the angles that he's able to hit it with, and uh, the success rate in terms of which he hits it with is amazing. The only thing I wish would be a little bit more would be if he threw more. That's it. Just throw a little bit more, and I'd be a little bit more comfortable. Um, Duplessis, on the other hand, it seems like at times he allows his opponents to kind of dictate the pace and where the fight is going to go, and more often than not, like, he'll find... Uh, you know, a takedown, or or I believe nine of, it is, of his 15 victories are by submission, so he definitely has a nasty jujitsu game, but I do think that Trevin Giles is definitely going to be prepared for that, ready for that. Um, and then in terms of his last win against Marcus Perez, you know that was a fight where he was pretty much getting marched down the entire time, and then found a beautiful combination to take Marcus Perez out. Um, Trevin Giles, on the other hand, I've never really been a big fan of his. Like I can't really uh, decide whether this guy even has top ten potential, but he does show decent things here and there. The James Cross fight was just a little bit too big of a red flag for me, right? Uh, obviously, didn't deserve to win that fight. There's no way he deserved to win that fight. And then how he gassed before James Cross gassed, who took the fight on less than what. 36 hours notice up that that was classes. up to weight classes yeah. the any weight champ mr yeah. james kraus um 
yeah, that that was so weird to me. But then like he has uh, a couple fights where he gets a finish in the third round, like he did against uh, Bavon Lewis next time around, right? But again, that's Bavon Lewis. That, that that's the difference, right? So Drickus Duplessis is a very skilled opponent. Don't get me wrong, fifteen and two, two losses. Gareth McLennan, if you remember, uh, yeah, Soldier yeah, Boy or whatever the fuck his name was from yeah, back yeah, in the day, yeah. South African, and then he beats Roberto Soldich in a big uh, upset victory for again in KSW for their title over there. And then obviously, you know, KSW is going to give him an immediate rematch. Gets the immediate rematch and Soldich gets that loss back. Uh, but here against Jaws, man, I think his. His lackadaisical approach is actually going to cost him here with Jaws, who should, you know, be able to just jab his face off, man. Just stick and move, stick and move. You know, maybe mixing a couple of takedowns here and there. I don't think he's going to be too worried about the submission game of Duplessis because he's a pretty decent jiu-jitsu player himself. Um, so, yeah, I, I end up coming up on the Giles side, but not with much conviction here. I, I know a lot of their fights do finish inside the distance, but given how these guys uh, kind of fare or, or stack up against each other, I, I feel like it's going to go the full three rounds. I feel like Giles is going to win this fight via decision, which currently sits at plus 210. So that's that's kind of the prop that I'm looking at for this fight, uh, Giles via decision. So as I just quickly turn off my mic to quickly fix this uh, <laughs> equipment malfunction, I'll tee it on over to you. How do you feel about this matchup between Giles and Duplessis? Yeah, I mean, I don't think this thing's going the distance. You got Drake's two places fighting. <clears throat> Drake's two places is just a man on a mission, man. You talked about the fact that he's a little lackadaisical, and I just think it's a <clears throat> not that it's a bad read, not that it's a. It's just funny to think that a dude with 15 pro wins, all 15 pro wins inside of the distance, is lackadaisical and taking too much time. Like he's a potent finisher, man. You mentioned the nine submission victories. He's also got six by KO. And when he loses, he's also getting finished. He's been submitted once. He's been knocked out once. So essentially, you've got 17 pro fights for Jacobs Duplacis. Neither of them have ever been the distance. So even though Giles is a little lackadaisical, Dreykus should force his hand. Giles has got big power himself. Someone's getting knocked out, in my opinion, in this fight. And so when I look at that under 2.5 at minus 120, it looks very nice to me. Dreykus has got a ton of power. What I mean by that is the Marcus Perez fight. Marcus Perez is durable. He's a legitimate, durable guy. And as soon as he touched him, it was like, oh, man, he's got big leg kicks. He immobilizes his target. He lands with those big shots. It's going to be a serious problem for a lot of people, right? Knocking out Perez is a feather in the cap. This Joelton Luderbach. Joelton Luderbach's got, I think, nine pro losses. Only two men have ever knocked him out. Ishmael de Jesus, who's a middleweight, and this kid who goes out there and puts it on him as a welterweight, right? Nine pro fought in some good guys. Fought Cowboy Oliveira. Was on the Ultimate Fighter. Just fought on the PFL tournament against Rush Manfio and uh, Clay Collar, is a real big, durable guy. But again, Dreykus touches him, he, he puts him away. He's got that power. But it's, the, it's the, the submission wins that I want to talk about really quick here as well. So you look at his last submission victory, Brendan Lassar, guillotine choke. Prior to that, the last one was Yannick Bahati, guillotine choke. We got Rafael Haratik, guillotine choke. And the fight right before that, Martin Van Steden, guillotine choke. He also locked up a guillotine choke earlier on in his career. The main thing, I think he's got five guillotine choke victories to go along with that big power. When you look at Trevin Giles, there's actually a repetitive theme here. He's got two pro losses, right? The first one against Zach Cummings, he got tired, he gassed out, he got knocked down in the third round. As he's hurt and tired, he gets snagged up in a guillotine choke. The very next fight against Gerald Mearshart, he got tired, he got hurt in the third round, he gave up a guillotine choke. Wouldn't you know it, he was actually 4-1 and one as an amateur as well. The one loss was by guillotine choke. He's got a problem with putting his neck in a bad spot. He's got a problem with gassing and getting desperate and putting his neck in a bad spot. And I don't think he wears damage particularly well. So when you consider he lost to Cummins, gassed out, submitted in the third, get lost to Jared Mearshart, gassed out, got submitted in the third, James Krause was the very next fighter in that list. Dude's a 55er, 
moves up to 185 on one day's notice. I know he's fought at 170, a little bit in the mix, but he's a 55er, man. Moves up to middleweight, and he should have lost that fight. He should have. So now that would have put him on a three-fight losing streak. We'd be writing, we wouldn't even be talking about it. But they gifted him the decision. Then he beat Bavon Lewis, who effectively, I believe, is 1-3 in the UFC. No longer has a, a job with them. And then he beats Roman Deletes, but Roman Deletes kind of blew it for himself, man. There, there's not enough I can get behind there. So when I look at Dracus, I think he'll have a lot of success with the leg kicks, hit Giles. If they're both going to be tentative and stand there for a little bit, work this guy's lead leg. It's an open target. You know, slow him down a bit. But Giles is also mostly a, a flat-footed boxer, right? He loves to box, doesn't throw a ton of kicks, doesn't move a whole lot. You could definitely mobilize a guy like that. But also what you saw with Roman Deletes, it was reactionary takedowns. Get Giles to move forward, duck under, shoot, take this guy to the ground. I think Dragos to do exactly that. Hit the leg, cause him to get a little bit desperate, cause him to move forward, reactionary takedown, take him down. If you can tire this guy out, if you can hurt this guy a little bit, if you can work this guy over, the neck will be an option, the knockout would be an option, and even though Dragos is real hittable himself, I think, I think more times than not, he's going to be able to solve the Giles puzzle. If he doesn't, and he gets countered, and he gets knocked out, baby, that's all right. The under 2.5 is sitting at minus 120. It's an excellent price tag, and I think it does cover you either side. Again, Giles, you would say that he's more of a decision guy, but he's got big power. He's knocked out a lot of guys. He just doesn't always put it all together at the highest level. When you've got a guy like Drake is attacking you, and is that open, and is exposed, and is there for the counter... Someone's getting toppled over in this fight, so I would go with the uh, the under 2.5 and, and minus 120. If I want to further a love for Dreykus Duplacis and say, you know what, I am sold on him. 15 wins, all inside the distance. I think this guy's got that, that inside-the-distance capability. Well, then Dreykus at inside-the-distance is plus 160. You know he's going to fight for your dollar. You know Giles. Giles is still a police officer, no? He, you know, he's only 27, I believe. He's not, like, old. He's not over the hill. Yeah. It just To me, it's always felt like he's not all the way committed. If the bird, if the building, he's a he's a cop. I'm sure he'd run into the building. But if the building's on fire. He's not running it in. He's running away from it. And whereas Dreykus is a little reckless at times, I could see Dreykus putting it together. And, and then the only pass I'll give Dreykus is, yeah, he did look a little bit pedestrian against Eric Perez or Marcus Perez, sorry, early before getting that finishing blow. But UFC debut, 11 month layoff. I'll give him a pass there. He did pull out of this original fight with an injury. Hopefully he's healed up. Hopefully he's good to go. This is going to be a fun fight. This will be an interesting fight. Despite both guys, like you said, at times can be a little too patient. I think that there's going to be a fireworks to end this one. And that's why I feel best about that under two and a half. I don't know what it is. I just don't feel like I can ever get a proper read on this Trevin Giles kid. But we'll definitely see how it plays out. Uh, before we actually move on to the next one, I do want to give a quick shout out. And a big congratulations to you for nailing that matchmaking uh, job with Z Promotions. With If people don't know about Z Promotions, they've been putting on some stellar events over on the West Coast in Canada. I th have they ever done U.S. shows? Yeah, so they had one show. It was a Tough Enough co-promoted show in Las Vegas, where Tough Enough is obviously the uh, premier amateur promotion amateur, yeah. in, in Nevada. So they wanted to like breach out and do like a pro offering. And uh, Jordan Leavitt, even though he fucked me in that Qualio Fellas fight, <laughs> he, was, he was on the card. He was on the card. So... Uh, yeah, they're definitely building towards, I know that they're going to Texas in August, they're doing like a Big Brother, if anybody's into Big Brother, it's like, they got contestants from Big Brother Canada taking on contestants from Big Brother US in like a charity boxing situation, um, so they're doing that, I don't got any involvement in that, my first show should be with them in Alberta in October, but they do have plans to go back to Vegas at some point, so... Yeah, super entertaining. They're not. It's not a. It's not a cheapy, cheaper promotion, man. These guys are high yeah. end. Like I said, they brought in, uh, you know, high end competitors. Chris Curtis, Joe Riggs, like 
Yeah, uh, Shane Campbell. Uh, yep. I know that Emmanuel Newton, the former Bellator yep. champion, he was out there. Ryan Quinn, who was a longtime American top team guy, one of George Mosvidal's, uh, you know, lead training partners for a very long time. Like, he was on the card. Uh, Jesse Arnett, Johnny Bedford, who was the bare knuckle boxing world champion as well as yeah. Ultimate Fighter veteran. Yeah, he was my guy, Johnny Bedford. Um, last thing, I, last thing I'll actually ask you about this. Uh, yeah. You said they're they're involved with bare knuckle boxing. Is that going to be taking place in Canada as well, or is that strictly in a couple states that they're going to be able to doing it? Yeah. So actually, when I was a lot younger, like before I got really into MMA, I went through this like brief phase. I, I'd watch boxing, and then I got into MMA like 2006. But there was this very brief phase where I was like, bare knuckle boxing is so cool, and there was like <laughs> there was nobody doing it, right? Um, but it was like one of those like small things. Um, what's not Bart Gunn? What's his name? He's a fucking legend. Oh, Nathan Bobby Gunn. Gunn. Bobby Gunn. Sorry, Bobby oh. Gunn. Uh, Bobby. Yeah, Nathan goes. Uh, he was from Manitoba. That guy was a banger. He's a good striker. <laughs> Bobby Gunn was a legitimate cruiserweight boxer. You know, fought Roy Jones Jr. Didn't do well, but uh, had fought some legitimate guys. And then you know he worked these like construction gigs, and on the side, just like beat the piss out of somebody bare knuckle. Right? He was the man. I always thought that was super cool. Then coincidentally. I'm looking in for uh, bare knuckle stuff because whatever, I went through a phase. And that's where I discovered Kimbo. And YouTube's kind of in its infancy. Like, I don't know, I only discovered in 2006. And I'd use it to watch Kimbo fights. And then through that, it was just like, how many bare knuckle fights are on YouTube? Hardly any at the time. Fuck, I bet you it's loaded now. Or just go to World Star Hip Hop, which wasn't a thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it was just like, oh, but there's more readily available of this MMA stuff. So I'd watch that. And then I watched like Jens Pohl versus Cub Swanson, a WBC show. And it was like, yeah, yeah, this is for me. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the rest is history. But I've always had that fascination for bare knuckle boxing. So when this Alberta promotion, they had, Z Promotions Fight Night, they had a bare knuckle boxing match um, between um, uh, Bobby Brent. He's an American fighter. Fought Steve Amiocic once upon a time in the MMA fight. But He's like, you know, more of a striker guy. They had him versus a local guy, Don Wonk, who's from Ontario. So it was billed as the Canadian heavyweight title. I'll bite one of the guys as American. And sure enough, the American ended up winning the fight. But it was dope, man. It was. I always wanted to see it live. That was like a bucket list thing for me. Flew it to Alberta, helped him out, oh, shot wow. a video backstage. Um, <laughs> you know, hung out with Don Wonk, who's like missing one of his knuckles. When did that, when, when, when was that fight? It would have been about two years ago now, right okay. prior to the pandemic. But uh, again, if you just check out Bobby Brents or Don Wonk, um, it'll readily come up there. But it was dope to see this bare knuckle boxing match. And it was heavyweights, and it was live, and there was blood, and it was a corner <laughs> stoppage. But all the same, it was like, yeah, this is some thrilling stuff. And they were the only ones able to do it because they did it in Lethbridge, Alberta. They worked with the uh, the commission. The commission said yes. And the wow. one, Ontario has an Ontario commission, right? I would yeah. assume New York has a New York commission. New Jersey has a New, uh, New Jersey commission. Nevada, the same thing. Alberta actually has like a dozen commissions, right? Because really? Yeah, because it goes by city, right? So Medicine has a commission. Lethbridge has a commission. Calgary has oh, a yeah. commission. Oh, yeah. Edmonton has their own has too. Yes. Yeah, Edmonton's a real bad commission. Yeah. Um, I've heard a lot of shit about those guys. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, Red, Red Deer has their own commission, right? So... If one of them was like, no, and the other one was like, no, you can find one that's like, left bridge will be like, let's do it. Yeah. And it was, uh, it was, it was pretty cool. So I know, um, the owner, Tom Fiddler, he's really into bare knuckle boxing as well. He enjoys it. He'd like to help grow the sport, and especially in Canada, which they're the only ones that can do it. Like, why not grow something out of it? And then to see, cause I watch all the BKFC stuff as well to see the amount of, I'm not going to call them washed up MMA fighters, but look at the amount of guys that have found a second career. Tiago yeah. Alves is done. You know, he's done. Well, what's sure. Tiago? He can't fight in the UFC anymore. He would not particularly do good in Bellator anymore. I would not, if I was having a child, I would miss that labor to watch a Tiago Alves bare knuckle boxing match <laughs> because this guy's bred for bare knuckle boxing. He's yeah. tough. 
He's a savage. He's an entertainer. And he's completely found a second breath. Even though Joe Riggs got cheated his last time out, God damn, that's the best my boy Diesel's looked in a while. He's walking Hector Lombard down. Hector Lombard, meanwhile, it's like he also is at the end of his competitive MMA career and who wants to fight this guy yeah. in bare knuckle boxing? Luis Palomino, the legend yeah, that never got his respect. Literally never got, never got a UFC crack. I don't think he's ever got a Bellator crack. He fought for World Series of Fighting. Had two fight of the years with Justin Gaethje. Crazy. The man is an absolute legend in the Southern Florida fight scene. And uh, to see him, again, second career opportunity in BKFC and kind of show the world what he's all about. Tremendous stuff, man. So the, I want the fighters to get paid. I want them to have opportunity. I want them to be able to go do what they need to do. And a lot of these guys, the older they get, they don't really want to wrestle anymore. They've got bad knee. They've got bad, you know, whatever it is. It's just general wear and tear. Seems like they can go out and do this. So super pumped to be doing MMA cards. I'm super so excited. pumped to be doing bare knuckle boxing cards. And then I think with the platform that create on 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 Twitter and online and social and just all the awesome support that I've had um, going into this new endeavor, I think that'll be a great asset for the promotion to put some great fights on, but also help build their profile up as well. Because it's a it's a legit company. It is more, pe- more people should know about it. I think I can help with that as well. I remember there was a couple of rumors that they're going to be doing a show in Toronto and never came out or never ended up happening. But man, like they, like I said, they're actually putting money behind their stuff. Like when we're doing uh, Substance Cage Comrade and stuff, we barely had any money to put these shows on, but we did the bare minimum to do it, right? And a couple of these other shows are doing the type, same type of thing. But I would love to see a Z promotion show. Uh, I might have to fly out and watch one of these shows if they do them only in the West Coast, but we'll see how that goes. Yeah. Uh, to, to put things into perspective, man, you and I, we did that SCC show, and the highest paid guy on the whole show would have made $3,000, right? EJ Press takes, right? Yeah, press press ticket, uh, ticket sales or whatever? Yeah, well, it was Jeremy Oshim was the highest paid guy, and the only reason was that is because he collected his win bonus. Todd Stout fought for free. Adrian Woolley fought for free. Alex Ricci fought for free. Alex Ricci went on to the UFC and fought that night for free. They fought so their opponents could get flown in. Their opponents all had two and twos. Um, yeah. EJ Brooks ended up losing, close decision. Jameson Saudino ended up losing, close decision. Jeremy Oshim ended up winning. He got his bonus made at 4000 Kyle Nelson, who now fights in the UFC, fought on that card for a 1000 flat. And yeah. he fought Ainsley Robinson, who is a Canadian Olympic uh, wrestler, you know, freak Choked athlete. his ass out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 20 oh, seconds. fuck. Yeah, and then Ainsley yeah. Robinson's kid ninja. Yeah, he jumps, jumps the, the cage. Shit. Jumps the cage, man. Bad look for a regional uh, MMA event. For sure. Great times, dude. And I miss that. And I'm really excited to jump back into that as well. But but I will admit, these guys are I, I we had multiple guys then go on to the UFC after that. Yeah. EJ Brooks went on to Bellator, Jameson Sadino fought for Bellator. Um, and these guys are pick they're 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 taking like two or three thousand dollars. Uh Z Promotions, meanwhile, had made like an offer to BJ Penn, which he did turn down, but sixty thousand dollars for a fight, you know what I mean? Wow. Like that that we, we had a whole event for that. Yeah. And these and these guys are in a position where they can go and put together a suit. I'll admit the rest of the card would have been probably local amateurs because you know For how sure. the business works. But the fact that they can do something like that, very exciting time. So I, I just can't wait to get started with them. And, and again, first show should be about mid-October in uh, in Lethbridge. Alberta. There we go. Big things for our guy, Cody Slavtik. So very happy that he was able to give him, uh, get that position. Round of applause for him. So I can't wait to see how that turns out. All right, let's get back to UFC 264. And we are right at the next fight that I'm quite excited about. We got Ryan Hall against Ilya Taporia. Uh, we got Taporia coming in with a little bit of chalk. Minus 235, uh, plus 195 on Ryan Hall. It, it was surprising to me that Ryan Hall has been inside the UFC 
UFC since 2015 and has only fought, uh, what, three or four times at this point. Uh, very, you know, seldom is he inside the cage. He's had a couple fights fall out on him over the last couple of years as well. Uh, a big one would have been against Dan Ige. Very unfortunate that that one uh, fell out. But here he is against hot upcoming prospect uh, Ilya Teporia. Now, Teporia initially came onto my radar when he fought Brian Buland over there in Cage Warriors. And uh, they had the odds out for it. I saw him as a slight underdog. And I found the tape on him. And it was impressive, don't get me wrong. But the the lack of competition and the level of experience of his competition was very worrisome. So I'm like, okay, he could do this to these guys. But can he do it to the guys that actually have legitimate like experience and skill set? And he chokes out Brian Bulan in like a minute and a half with a beautiful choke. So I was like, okay, maybe this guy actually has something. And as soon as he got signed to the UFC, I was like, done this guy this guy has it all for sure has a successful debut against yusuf zalal it looks a little bit tapered down in that third round but you got to cut him a little bit of a slack if you guys do remember he took that fight on somewhat short notice so let's give cut him a bit of a slack there has a bit of a abbreviated training camp in his next fight against damon jackson quick turnaround uh and and finishes him in, inside the first round with punches which is something that we haven't seen much of him throughout his career normally he's the wrestler that takes his opponents down tries to choke them out now he's slowly starting to get his striking game better but we still need to see a little bit more of it like it's one thing to just go out there and start damon jackson but it's another thing dealing with the wild fucking unorthodox nature of mr uh ryan hall now this is the fight where or, or ryan hall is like the perfect fighter to break down and truly find out who's actually been watching the tape on ryan hall because on the surface it seems like he would have the type of game left to just go in there you know desperation takedowns try to get this fight to the ground and go for a submission but he doesn't do that like he just throws he he's so uh, like chaotic on the feet in the striking realm because he doesn't care about being taken down it's kind of like Haniyaya, except with Haniyaya throwing spinning back kicks and spinning spinning heel kicks and stuff, because Ryan Hall just doesn't give a fuck. He's going to flop to his back when he needs to. The Gray Maynard fight was probably the funniest fight in UFC history, considering any time that Gray Maynard tried engaging with him, he would just fall to his back. Like he just did not let Gray Maynard get anything off in that fight. But uh, in his last fight against Darren Elkins, again, a lot of spinning stuff, uh, you know, staying on the outside a lot, waiting for his moment to kind of crash forward with a proper uh, a strike or, or something that's going to uh, cause damage to Darren Elkins. Uh, and then every now and then throwing in an MNRI role. Let's see if I can get this guy's leg and try to submit him. Uh, what Ilya Tapuria, though, if I'm not mistaken, he's one of the first ever black belts to come out of Spain, uh, which is a, a huge accolade, obviously, but he's only 24 years old. He still has a lot of time to grow. He's undefeated. He still has a lot uh, to, to, to showcase in terms of his striking, like I said, and I think that this is a good fight for him to kind of showcase that while dealing with the murky waters that is Ryan Hall, right? He's going to have to deal with that spinning stuff, and then after that spinning stuff is when he should be able to get his striking off. But I'm not sure if he's going to, like, like in, in, in interviews, all he's talking about is taking down uh, Ryan Hall and playing that game with him. I'm not sure if that's the best thing to do. You know, I, I'm sure you might be egotistical to a certain extent to, to think that you're going to go out there and roll with Ryan Hall. But, like, we have to take that mythical creature of Ryan Hall jiu-jitsu down a little bit, especially with other black belts who are able to go out there and compete with him. And I think that Tuporio will be able to compete with him, but I think he'll definitely get the better of the striking exchanges too. So I'm actually taking Tuporio. I'm going to be taking him by, by KO as well, though, because I do think that eventually he'll be able to find the shot to put Ryan Hall away. Uh, and I think it's going to come a little bit later, probably in that second round. So I'm looking at Taporia by TKO plus 160, and then Taporia probably round two plus 500, possible round three. But Ryan Hall is just so slippery and hard to get a hold of But uh, th that I'm having a little bit of skepticism regarding it. I'm fine with just parlaying. 
to Poirier. I think he wins this fight. I don't think there's a way that he loses this fight. The way that he beats, uh, the way Ryan Hall beat uh, Darren Elkins is just catching him every now and then with that weird spinning uh, hook kick and and just hurting him that way. I don't think he's going to be able to catch Tupori. I think he'll uh, he'll telegraph it. Tupori's going to see it, get out of the way, and the, get, get his own damage going, and hopefully a knockout. So once again, I'm going to Tupori KO plus 160. How are you feeling about this one? Same, same, only different. I got Tupori, but I think it's going to the distance. <laughs> um, yeah, listen, I, I really like uh, what I see from Tupori. He's coming to the UFC. He looks good so far. We did cash a plus money ticket on him in his debut against yep. Yusuf Zalal. And again, that was the case that Zalal was 3-0 in the UFC that year. And Tapuria was taking the fight on short notice, and there wasn't a ton to go by. But what you could see is in fantastic shape. BJJ Black Belt seems to have a really good program behind him in Spain. Uh, kid seems to be fairly wealthy, and he's really dedicated himself to training. You don't see the hands. You don't see the power. I think he shows effectively zero knockout wins, maybe one knockout win prior to the Damon Jackson fight. But again, it's like you see what he does against the lull. It gets tired a bit. You mentioned short notice. Damon Jackson's a hittable opponent. This kid lets his hands go. He has power. And the, to see him go and work the body, that was especially nice because a lot of young fighters, they'll headhunt a little bit. These guys are, are not willing to go out there and, and just let it fly to the body like that. I just think that it's all it's all good stuff. He's all making advantage. But one, we can't all of a sudden just imagine that he's a murderous power puncher now. And two, with Ryan Hall, if you've ever met Ryan Hall and spoken to him, um, he's a brilliant individual. Like Outside of a slight speech impediment, like he's a very, very, very smart guy. Very, you know, high ring IQ. And the biggest thing is that his jiu-jitsu in general, because, you know, he's an unassuming, nerdy-type looking guy, it's all about defense. It's all about defending yourself. It's all about not getting hurt. And that's why he can fight Gray Maynard, and he can fight Darren Elkins, and he can fight these guys. He just neutralizes. That's what he does. How would he win this fight, which I don't think he does, but how would he win this fight? I think it would look a lot like the Arden Lobov fight, where he just takes the back take, he puts in the body triangle, and that's it. Body triangle and coast. Guy can't get you off his back. You hold on to the position. He's a high-level grappler. He's a he's a he's a tricky grappler. He's a you know an opportunistic grappler, but he fights a very defensive game plan. And so think about what Elkins is going through. Gray Maynard had it the worst. You try to bum rush this guy with a couple punches. He kicks you twice and then falls on his ass. Well, what do you do? Gray Maynard's by the way a BJJ black belt. You don't want to go play this guy's guard. You're just gonna flip to 50-50 and look for the leg. And by the way, he's not a leg lock specialist. He's an excellent leg locker. But he's a back take specialist. And when he takes your back and he's got a nasty back take, body triangle, hold position, you're not going anywhere. That would that would be the worry. So he'll fight Taporia very similar, I think. Taporia will walk in, try to land those hands, maybe try to work the body. He'll just sit down. Do, do you want to come in my guard, kid? 23-year-old kid, you want to get in Ryan Hall's guard? Probably not. So you back up. He stands up. He kicks you a few times. You go to get a hold of him. He sits on his ass. He doesn't care about getting booed. The UFC barely books him. Nobody on the roster wants to fight the guy, but he's a smart guy. Now, he has lost an exhibition on the Ultimate Fighter against Saul Rogers, uh, majority decision. He did lose his pro debut back in 2006 against Eddie Fivey, by decision. He's not shown a propensity to get knocked out. He's certainly not getting submitted. I would think, if anything, this would be a, a hard fight to watch. It could be very boring. It could be very frustrating, similar to Gray Maynard. Takuri could be thinking to himself, what are you doing? But I, I think the judges will end up siding with him. He will get that decision. And so when I see Tapuri, first of all, fight goes the distance at plus 120. I like it. I think, if, again, Tapuria wins. It's just a better work. Maybe a little bit of top control later in rounds. But I think he would win a decision. If Hall springs the upset, I think a lot of it's going to be back take. Back take, put the body triangle in, hold position, win two of these three rounds, and then just butt scoot and survive. So the fight goes. 
plus 250, too good of a price for me to look away from. So again, I know he just knocked out Damon Jackson, but again, Damon Jackson doesn't have a history of being a durable guy. And Ryan Hall's not, he's not stupid, man. He's not going to stand in there and exchange punches with him. He's going to kick twice and sit on his ass. It's going to be tough to watch, frustrating to watch. But uh, it's a survival-type game plan. That's what jiu-jitsu is, right? Guy breaks in your house, right? And uh, you call the cops, and the cops, being cops, they're going to be here in 20 minutes from now. You're going to be able to survive for 20 minutes? <laughs> Ryan Hall will, because he'll just hold a defensive position. You mean, what are you going to do to him, right? That That's jiu-jitsu in its essence, you know? And then... Then you get good at it, and then you got some submissions, and then you got some top control. But the basis of jiu-jitsu, you show up to your first class as a white belt, it's just survive. See how long you can survive for. Oh, you survived a little bit longer the next day, and a little bit longer. Okay, take on that guy. He's bigger. How long can you survive against him? That's what it is. And I think at the essence, Hall will be able to do that. So I agree with your assessment. You got Taporia. I agree with your assessment. You like Taporia. I just don't think that that knockout materializes. And so for that reason, I'll go with FICO's the distance plus 120 and Ilya Taporia by decision plus 250. I think the Jessica I and Jennifer Maya fight is the only one that we've agreed on that's going to a decision. <laughs> we'll I know, see. and I'm usually always I know. <laughs> Actually, we both got Brad Tavares by decision. Okay, there we go. There we oh, go. Yeah. There we go. All right, let's move on to the seventh fight of the night. This one should be fun, uh, but don't uh, get too excited about it because we could see Discipline Michelle Pereira coming to the table against Nico Price here. In terms of odds, we got minus 175 for uh, Pereira and plus 155 for Nico Price. And I'm liking what I'm seeing from this kind of new-ish Michelle Pereira, right? Like, he learned his lesson with that Tristan Connolly fight. The, you know, Chaos had some moments in their fight, but obviously Pereira deserved to win that fight. Uh, seeing him go for takedowns late in the fight, it kind of made me smile like you know this guy's kind of maturing at a proper rate and it, that's weird to say especially considering that he already has what 36 fights under his belt it took him his what 34 fights to figure out how to truly fight and be a, a legitimate uh you know threat with inside the ufc so uh you know good for him in terms of finally figuring that out but uh, i feel like he has a pretty bright future inside the ufc especially cracking that top 10 if he brings that style uh effectively time and time again D you know uh controlled chaos uh cardio and the fight iq in terms of going for takedowns when he's kind of lulled his opponent into thinking that he's just gonna do his circus shit and i think that's what he should be able to do here against nico price i think price is gonna have trouble finding that uh the, the success with the striking on a michelle Pereira that's gonna kind of be dancing on the outside and just waiting for his moment to explode and another thing about Pereira, holy fuck how the hell does that guy make 170 pounds man that guy is massive for sometimes this weight class <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly sometimes he doesn't but like when he does good god this guy is absolutely sculpted but uh yeah no i do think that he has a good chance of winning this fight more often than not with nico price fights back in the day i would always just bet the under but it seems like he's himself becoming a little bit more composed and trying to find his openings a little bit better but there's always that issue that nico price could find your chin and put your lights out that guy has ungodly power i remember on on my stream on tuesday night uh, i said that he like he has a crazy physique right wide ass shoulders and like very long gangly and lanky type of guy and somebody in the comment section called him uh he pretty much just looks like a head on a dorito and i'm like it completely makes sense dude the guy is, is shaped like a triangle pretty much he's fucking masses from from his upper body but I do think that he'll uh, he'll struggle here in terms of finding that big shot against Pereira. I think Pereira will be able to kind of put a better pace on him as well too, land more strikes, look like he's doing the more effective work. And then when he needs to, I think he can rely on that takedown later in this fight to kind of just sway the judges and secure rounds. So 
although some people might think that this might be a chaotic fight in terms of us seeing a possible finish here, I do think that we'll see that disciplined approach from Pereira here, especially considering this is the biggest name that he's fought inside the UFC at this point, other than Diego Sanchez, who obviously doesn't mean anything rankings-wise anymore. But getting a win over Nico Price uh, really establishes himself in terms of fighting guys with legitimate name value within that division and i think that if he's able to get a victory this weekend we'll see him fight you know one of the bigger names in this division so i'm taking uh Pereira. i'm gonna actually take him by decision as well i do think that he just you know outworks nico price over 15 minutes plus 270 for Pereira by decision even the over one and a half it's kind of juiced at this point at minus 185 but that just is indicative of people seeing that okay you know nico price and, and Pereira seemingly barn burner type of guys but they do have some control and uh, some discipline about them at least more so in recent fights that will ultimately make the fights go 15 minutes and that's what i'm expecting to see this weekend so i'm going Pereira Pereira decision like i said uh plus 260 i believe the number was uh plus 270 Pereira by decision how are you seeing this one yeah again this is not a fight i really like from a prop standpoint like it from an entertainment standpoint but the only one i really felt okay with was the over one and a half and it was minus 180 and that's just not the price kind of price tag you want these guys could both end the night on any given punch right you've got michelle Pereira, who is just dynamite when he wants to be could end it early against anybody and uh and he himself is a tad bit chinny i mean we saw dusko todorovic probably the last guy that stopped him he hasn't stopped in the past Nico Price, meanwhile, he's got the death touch. How do you knock out Randy Brown from that position? You know, the upkick on, yeah. on, on James Vick. Like, he's got a lot of these... The Alex Morono fight, the round ends, and Morono just melts into the cage like a dead body. It's like, whoa. Uh, but he himself has been knocked out three times. Again, sometimes... Uh, not the biggest punchers going, but, you know, again, he has been... I, I shouldn't say that. The guys that have knocked out Nico Price are generally... Uh, Big, big, big thumper. Abdul Razak Assad, yeah. Yeah, that's the only guy that's bad. But is he a thumper? Yeah, he's a thumper. If he hits you, it ain't going to go good. And yeah. so in that in that case, yeah, Nico got knocked out. What I'm saying is both guys have the capability of finishing the other guy's night. So do I feel comfortable with an over one and a half at minus 180? Nah, I probably don't. I'm going to go dogger pass on this one. Uh, the reason why I'm going against... You, you brought up... So many good points. Very, a lot of good points. Michelle Pereira has fought like a much more controlled guy. When he is controlled, he's one of the strongest welterweights. He's got a legitimate takedown game. Guy is a BJJ black belt. He's heavy on top. He's been spending a lot of time working on his gi jiu-jitsu game. He's one of the better athletes in the division. And as long as he hones it in, we're good. And he has been honing it in. And if he fights a proper game plan against Nico Price, he defeats him. If he doesn't fight a proper game plan, if he gets a little too theatrical, if he gets tired, he's going to be there to get hit. So you look at the Chaos Williams fight, those two takedowns, in essence, saved the fight for him. Because media members a little bit split. Some of them scored it for Chaos Williams. But by the numbers, Williams outstrikes him 55-44. Does actually land probably, definitely lands more volume. And probably does edge out the striking. It's the two takedowns that are that difference maker. When you look at Chaos Williams, the one thing that's kind of freakish about him is that he's got a 77-inch reach on a 6-foot frame. It's a big reach on him. Pereira seems to have difficulty working against that reach. Now, some of his other guys he's fought, Diego Sanchez, Tristan Connolly, Danny Roberts, they didn't pose that same problem. But with Chaos Williams, he respected his power, and he had trouble overcoming that distance. You mentioned it yourself. Nico Price has this big, long wingspan. Of him, six foot one with a 76-inch reach. I think if he, can, if he can keep him at bay, he can maybe outwork him ever so slightly. So that's where the takedown comes in. It all comes down to Michelle Pereira fighting a good game plan. Ba -ba -ba -ba! Here's where my greasy theory will come into place for why he'll probably fuck it up. <laughs> so he fights, he fights Danny Roberts, and it's badass, dude. It was so badass. The fans are on their feet. They're going nuts. 
Dude's running off the cage like the Matrix. Dices him. Sweet knockout. He gets Tristan Connolly. Dude, he's going full Matrix. He's backflipping. He's doing car wheels, running off the cage. The fans are going nuts. His, uh, he fights a terrible game plan. He runs out of gas. He loses. Diego Sanchez. It's a good fight. He's fighting well. The fans are going nuts. It's, it's a chaotic moment, and he gets himself disqualified. Where I'm going with this is the next two fights where he's reeled in were in the apex. No fans, <laughs> right? Empty arena. Empty arena. And the I see where you're going with this. The motherfucker's not backflipping all of a sudden. He's yeah. not running off the cage. He's not doing all that shit. He's fighting like a toned down, you know, um, fight with the basics, and he's good. He's good. Now he's on the McGregor undercard. He's got McGregor fans. And we in the team mobile in Las Vegas, baby. And the place is going to be a ruckus. And he's just, you know, he's coming off a decision win in kind of a boring fight. He, people were always saying he's the most exciting guy in the division. And now, you know, he, he, he's fighting a little more control. I don't think so. I think the fans are going to get in his head. He's going to do something <laughs> fucking stupid. And I don't know why that's my gut feeling. So as far as a dogger pass play goes, I'm going to dogger pass Nico Price. As far as am I expecting Nico Price to win this thing, Six out of ten times. No, I think it's a close fight. Both guys could have their merit. But I think stay to the outside, use that reach, keep him at bay. When he does that crazy stuff, that's your time to capitalize. And beyond capitalizing on a you know a cartwheel kick or capitalizing on one of those front flips that you do, is, is just that stuff is taxing on his body. That stuff tires him out. And when he hears the noise and he gets dancing to the ring and he starts breakdancing, it's like you know it's all over right then and there. <laughs> that's what I want to see. I want to see the fans get in his head, him try to be a little bit too exciting. Him get a little bit tired, and then Nico Price to work his way back into this one. So again, I really don't love it on a prop standpoint. I suppose maybe like that Nico Price by decision prop is obviously really big, um, but again, maybe the over one and a half at minus one eighty, and hope that dynamite doesn't happen for the first seven and a half minutes because it's gonna be volatile. I haven't passed yet on one, and this is a very fun fight. Don't get me wrong, but as far as a financial standpoint, probably just enjoy it on an entertainment vantage instead of uh, instead of putting some hard earned money. <laughs> and watching them do backflip it away. Your your greasy theory is just on point here, and I can absolutely see it. Like Michelle Pereira, first round, doing his fucking discipline thing, hearing some boos, and then just out of nowhere, starts yeah. the second round with fucking jumping off the cage and fucking flipping on his back or some shit. Goddamn. I hope I'm not putting any money on this fight personally, but uh, just for prediction's sake, I hope he just fucking reels it in and brings us that discipline shout out to my guy pssa with the five dollar donation but i believe he was the one that called him dorito price uh <laughs> so shout out to my guy pssa 31 i had to let him know all right uh main event for the uh prelims here prelim headliner i should say uh max griffin against carlos condit in terms of odds we got say uh Minus 185 for Max Griffin, plus 160 for Carlos Carndit. Uh Line has stayed roughly around there. I think I've seen uh, Max Griffin up to like minus 200 at certain times, but roughly stayed around minus 170 to minus 200. Um, the way that I see this going down, Carlos Condit has had the perfect fights in his last two fights coming back from his retirement. Court McGee throwing zero takedowns or shooting zero takedowns. That is the perfect Court McGee fight for Carlos Condit to win. Uh, the next fight, Matt Brown. I, I bet on Matt Brown in that fight because I'm like, just get takedowns, dude. And that's what he did in the first round. He got the takedown. He was riding out top position, but he just wasn't throwing enough from on top. And I believe at least two judges scored that first round for Carlos Condit. Uh, but we still saw, like, Carlos Condit still hasn't fixed those takedown issues. Even in the third round, with Matt Brown gasping for air, still completes a takedown. Albeit, he doesn't get much damage off on top. Still allows takedowns. If I'm not mistaken, Carlos Condit's takedown defense rate is around still 30 to 36% or so. 
and I think he's going to struggle in terms of keeping Max Griffin from taking him down in this spot. Max Griffin, uh, you know, a lot of people, you know, say, you know, his best win, Mike Perry, beating him by decision and all that. That's a fight that he came into with, like, uh, as being, like, a, what, a plus 170, plus 180 underdog, and he went out there and, and pulled off the upset using the game plan that he needed to to win, which leads me to believe that he should go out there and use the game plan that he needs to win here against Carlos Condon, probably the biggest fight in his career, against the biggest name in his, in the, in his career, right? We know what uh, Carlos Condit's deficiency is. It's taking him down and grinding him out. And that's almost the reason why Carlos Condit pretty much retired. I mean, goes on a five-fight losing streak, the majority of it, because he just keeps getting grapple-fucked and he can do nothing about it. Yeah, he's a black belt in BJJ. And yeah, it seems like his guard is offensive. You know, got Michael Chiesa in a close armbar attempt or something like that. And, you know, he he's always throwing stuff up to try to re remain active. But the truth is, he hasn't completed a submission since 2008 against Carlo Prater way back in WEC. He hadn't even been in the UFC yet, and he still has yet to complete a, a submission. So uh, I do think he will struggle here in terms of getting work done off of his back. Now, with this fight on the feet, you got to give the slight advantage to Carlos Condit. A little bit more durab or, or, or durable and also versatile in his striking approach. Great punches to head kick combinations types of th things. That's something that Max Griffin has to have to worry about. But I think that it's going to be tough for Carlos Condit to get those types of strikes off with Max Griffin pretty much just pushing him back the entire time. Max Griffin has shown great uh, pressure and pace in his re most recent fights where he's just staying in his opponent's faces. Uh, even his first like couple minutes uh, of these past couple fights his pace and his pressure is just right off the bat he is a quick starter he gets in your face and he gets you uncomfortable and i think if he does that here against carlos condit he'll have a lot of success and i think this resurgence of mr carlos condit is just a, a fallacy at this point especially with him having two very uh good fights for him to go out there and win again Court McGee shooting zero takedowns i think if court McGee threw three or shot three takedowns in that fight he probably wins that fight but he throws zero for no reason. Uh, and then Matt Brown starts to gas and Carlos Condit takes advantage of that. So although Max Griffin has been in some crazy wars in his last several fights, I do think that his durability is still top-notch. I do think he can take a punch. I don't think that Carlos Condit has that crazy knockout power to put him out. Uh, but there is that head kick that I am a little bit worried about just as Alex Morono was uh, able to successfully land on him. The difference, though, is... I think Max Griffin's going to be expecting head kicks from Carlos Condit, finished off of uh, combinations, whereas he didn't expect it from Alex Morono. So that's one thing that I'll throw him out there and give him the benefit of the doubt of. But I do think that Max Griffin lands takedowns here, puts pressure on Carlos Condit, and reminds us why Carlos Condit, you know, is Carlos Condit in 2021. Can't stop takedowns, and that's exactly why I believe Max Griffin's going to win this fight. So I like Max Griffin. I like Max Griffin by decision. I'd be surprised if either person gets a finish here, to be honest. Uh, Griffin by decision is plus 160. I like that line. Also, I'm also just noticing now, Carlos Condit to win by submission is plus 1,200. Oh geez. Because <laughs> it hasn't insane. happened since 2008. Exactly. That's what I mean, right? So uh although he does show some good work off of his back, like you said in the, the Matt Brown fight, I think that he's gonna have a lot more resistance to deal with, especially with Max Griffin here, who knows that this is the biggest fight of his career. And even in all the interviews that I've been seeing this fight week, it seems like this guy's dialed in and ready to go. The only thing I'll say is he says he wants to go out there and get a knockout. I'm hoping that's just him doing the whole interview thing, but he should go out there and uh, fight a good game plan. So I'm going uh max griffin via decision how are you seeing this one yeah absolutely the same way carlos condit 39 takedown uh 39 takedown uh, defense in his ufc career all right seems low 18 ufc fights so there's a pint size there to go for 56 times he's been taken down <laughs> that's a real fucking number man 
So have they figured out how to defeat Carlos Condit? Yeah, absolutely. He comes from an era where you only needed two skills, and his two skills are striking and jiu-jitsu. And nobody wanted to strike with him, and he was good off his back for that time. But you saw him get largely exposed when he came to the UFC. Wrestlers take him down. Johnny Hendricks took him down 12 times in their encounter. But, you know, he, he pretty much gave up takedowns to almost everybody. And then you look at his, his run where he looks like he's bottoming out. Um, Damian Mind only needed the one. Neil Magny with six. Cowboy Oliveira with three. Michael Chiesa with four. They bully him in the clinch. They're a lot stronger than him. They get him down. Once they get him down, he's just not strong enough to consistent. He does scramble. He does get back up. And the takedown is there for him again. And then you nailed it. They give him Court McGee. He's a 35-year-old fighter. He's a little bit older. His best days are behind him. He's not fighting as competitive as he used to. And they're friends. And Court McGee's on record before the fight being like, this is, I want to have a fun fight for the crowd. No! Fun fight for the crowd. Win! Win! Dig him down! But it's like, well, people want to see Carlos strike. He's on a six-fight losing streak because nobody wants to strike with him. I'll strike with him. Bad move. But actually, in watching back, I felt the same way as I did when I watched it live. Court McGee, then by the numbers, it's 88-84 for Condit. And McGee backs him up a lot. And McGee has a lot of success. But McGee keeps getting chin-checked at the wrong time. Like, right when he's getting a little bit of momentum going, Carlos lands that snappy shot that hurts him. The no-takedown attempts cost him. And like you said, had he just mixed in a few with that striking, he gets the job done. Now you get Matt Brown. Well, Matt Brown had just turned 40. I think he's like six days over his 40th birthday. And, you know, same thing. I mean, the takedown was there for the first round, but there's just there's not enough continuation out of it. And so when I watch Matt Brown now, the biggest thing is that he's half as fast as the Matt Brown of, of, of before. And with Court McGee, a notorious very slow fighter, he, he did, has not got any faster now that he's 35. He's a very slow fighter. Carlos can still be competitive with those guys. I don't know that he will be against Max Griffin. Now, Max Griffin is 35. You know, he, he's not exactly young. But he's coming into his own. He's on a two-fight winning streak. He's looked good. The jab's there. The long striking's there. I'd say he had a, maybe a slight power advantage. But beyond that, it's that advantage for, for Connor for striking. But it will be competitive enough for Max Griffin stand-up. Mix in those takedowns. That's going to seal the deal. That's going to be the difference maker. Going out there and getting those takedowns. Now again, with Max Griffin, this is a guy that's 5-6 and six in the UFC. Started off his career 3-6 and six in the UFC before winning those last two. Fair. But there's a, lot, there's a lot of moments you can take away. Loses the Alex Morono fight. Shit, should have wrestled a little sooner. Wrestling actually looked good near the end of that fight. The Alex Oliveira fight. Shit, loses a split decision. I thought he should've, won that fight. And he should have wrestled a little bit earlier. Yeah, but I thought he won that fight even regardless. Yeah, I oh. thought he won the fight. It was a close fight. It was a split. Um, I believe they were in Brazil, but regardless, MMA media members, they had it about split, 50-50 yeah. down the line. Uh, I could see the argument for either side, but I thought Griffin just waited a little too long to get going. He changes that. He doesn't come off the slow start. He mixes in that wrestling. That'll be big for him. And last but not least, we think of him not as a wrestler. You know, the Mike Perry fight, perfect Matador performance. Stay to the outside, use the jab, intercept him coming in, stay long. Picture perfect for 15 full minutes. That's a good performance. But really, you look back at him versus Cowboy Oliveira, two takedowns. Not easy taking down Cowboy, who easily tossed around uh, Carlos Conde when they fought. You saw a physical advantage there. He does take him down two, twice. The Alex Morono fight, four times. Right before that, Zelina Madaev, six times. Right before that, Tiago Alves, twice. Right before that, Curtis Millinder. Although, who doesn't take down Curtis Millinder? Yeah. But he had five straight fights where he was using his wrestling for periods of the fight every time out. The last two, while he 
had such an easy way, a time with Ramiz Brahimaj, and he blew up his ear. He didn't need the wrestling. And that last fight with Song Kanong, well, he deaded him before he ever really needed to even think about shooting a takedown, so he didn't need it there. But it's there. It's there. He's getting better. He's had a couple bad bounces go his way, like the Morono fight and the Alex Oliveira fight. He's just got to realize, take the, e- take the low-hanging fruit. Take the easy path to victory. And the fans start cheering as well, and you're staring down the natural-born killer, former WEC champ, former UFC title challenger. You want an interim belt in the UFC? I, I, those, they're not real champions, but all the same. He's got a legacy. He's got a name. And the fans want to see you strike a little out. Don't strike too much. Do it a little bit. If he fights the right game plan, he shows high ring IQ, he gets this win. He gets this win on the base of the takedowns. That, that decision price is plus 140. I like it. I think I also looked at the fight goes the distance is minus 190. Eh, that one I didn't care for as much. But again, if Griffin wins this fight, it's with the takedowns decision. If Condit wins this fight, is Condit knocking guys out at this stage? Like I don't think so. I think it's more of a sparring session. He lands his combos. He, he hurts you a little bit, doesn't quite put you away, and will probably win. You know, 29-28 with uh, three close-ish competitive rounds. So I think the fight goes the distance minus 190. You've covered either side, although the official pick will uh, will have to be uh, Max Griffin, who at plus 140. Yeah, not a bad price as far as I'm concerned. I like it. I like it. All right, that brings us to our main card, and it seems like we've got an influx of new viewers after the the press conference just uh, just wrapped up. So shout out to everybody that's hopping on with us right now. Uh, you guys can follow me at MMALOTN, and obviously Cody on his handle on the screen there at CJ Safdick. And also make sure you guys go subscribe to my channel as well as his channel. The link to his channel is in the description below. So shout out to everybody that's helping out. And if you haven't already liked the video. Like that shit right now. All right. All right. Let's get to the main event. Uh, first up, we got uh, Sean O'Malley taking on uh, who gives a fuck. No, I'm sorry. Uh, against Chris Moutinho. Uh, Sean Norris, Chris Moutinho stepping in for uh, Luis Smoko, who stepped, uh, who unfortunately had to pull out of the fight uh, a couple of days ago. Uh, and, you know, I would rather O'Malley not fight. <laughs> you know what I mean? Than, 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 than go in there and fight this kind of guy because it really doesn't prove anything at this point in time. I don't know how much we can truly go into this fight to break it down. Like, I tried to find a glimmer of hope for Mr. Moutinho, but like, after running through the tape of his, there's nothing that I really like enough to be like, okay, he probably shows something that I could threaten O'Malley with. No. It seems like once these guys actually score off with each other, it's going to look like they're in completely different weight classes. And I do think that it's going to uh, cause a Moutinho to, to get knocked out, man. It seems like in most of his fights, he gets he gets hurt, rock dropped. But uh, luckily for in his second last fight against the, uh, Ajim Azim, I think the guy's name was. Azim was having tons of success in that first round. Hurt him multiple times, almost finished him. And then it seems like Moutinho was taking the Homer Simpson approach, letting uh, Azim just fucking uh, uh, punch himself out and then eventually finish him in that second round. And then his next fight. Uh, I'm sure you've heard of this guy before, Andrew Salas, six and five. Andrew Salas now six and six, obviously losing to Chris Moutinho. That guy seemed like he blew blew his wad within the first three or four minutes of that fight. And then Chris Moutinho was putting on a little bit of a clinic. And it's funny because the commentary team, I believe it was jo- uh, John Morgan and uh, CM Punk, because it was for CFFC, they were just hyping him up. They're like, "Oh, he looks amazing. He's putting on a clinic. His striking looks so good." Yeah, it looks good against a guy that just can't react to anything and is willing to get fucking torn apart and then obviously gets finished in that third round. Now, once he steps in there against Sean O'Malley, Sean O'Malley's just going to light this kid up, man. I'd I'd be surprised if Moutinho gets outside of the first round considering, one, how hittable he is, and two, how, you know, 
lack of durability of this guy. I think that that's that's really going to play into O'Malley's favor. So the spots that I'm looking at, O'Malley, KO, obviously that's going to be heavy juice at this time considering that he's minus 750, minus uh, 800. So O'Malley by KO minus 260. <laughs> you got 260? I saw, I got 275 written down here. <laughs> it's not a good price. <laughs> Fucking crazy. I know, uh, the same thing. And then uh, I was even th like, thinking, okay, maybe we'll get some solid plus money on O'Malley in round one. It seems over at five times. He's minus 140. 45 to win in round one uh but a couple other sites he's at like plus 120 plus 130 uh so yeah o'malley first round ko i'm probably going to take a little bit on that o'malley round one just for kicks uh but yeah uh, you see any way mutinho can pull off the 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 upset here not to mention last thing i'll say actually about mutinho he if i'm not mistaken he is a training partner a former ufc fighter you're going to castro go ahead Cody. <laughs> Yeah, uh, he's a career CES guy. I think he's seven and four for the CES organization. Challenged for their title one time, came up short against Tony Gravely, and then yeah. got knocked out in his subsequent fight against Johnny Campbell. I mean, we've seen a lot of these guys from the uh, northeastern regional scene prop up here and there, and limited success. He is who he is. How could how does he win this fight? Tell you how he wins this fight. He's got a pulse, he's got a pulse <laughs> and, a, and, a, and a, like a heartbeat, and so for that very reason, Sean O'Malley could break his own fucking leg again. Because uh, how does O'Malley lose? He blows it for himself. That's kind of yeah. how his, his kryptonite is. But all, all jokes aside, um, he's out of MMA lab, Sean O'Malley is, right? And so his head coach is John Crouch. But really, his lead guy has always been Tim Welch. And Tim Welch is very, very smart. And he's a guy that's a massive fight fan. And all this guy does is just watch fights. Remember Fightmaster? Yeah, yeah. Tim Welch <laughs> is on Fightmaster. Exactly. Dude, he's a badass. And yeah. actually, I think uh, even though he's redheaded, I think he's half native. So he's oh. Like, well, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. Yeah, and he fight on these reserves. He's a badass dude. He has some big wins. His chin kind of left him near the end. Um, but, like, is, is a hardcore fight fan, is an excellent coach now, and a guy that analyzes it. And so what happens is when O'Malley loses his opponent and they give him a list, I, it's as easy as to say they pick Chris Moutinho because he's probably the lowest-ranked guy on the list. But I would go further to be like, they've watched the tape too, and they know exactly how this thing's going to go down. And Mali's going to topple this kid over. So they pick him because now Sean can go. He's going to get a highlight reel finish. doesn't matter who you fight. If you dead a guy in spectacular fashion, you're getting a 50G bonus out of it, right? <clears throat> and um, and then, yeah, he sells merch. He sells his jerseys. He's got his own podcast. Like, the, okay, we'll wait three months. We'll fight a legitimate guy. Those three months, coming off a huge knockout win that we can just talk about all the time. Highlight. Yeah, it's all just good for business. You know, it's all just good for hype. So... The one thing I will leave you with, though, I think O'Malley gets the job done. I think he gets the TKO at 275. Is that O'Malley doesn't seem to be, I'm not gonna say the smartest. He just he's a, he's a, he's a tad bit arrogant, maybe for his own for his own good. And so I saw an interesting um, interview where he was like knocking this guy out round two, fucking book it, knocking this guy out round two, book it. I thought that was interesting that he was calling a round two knockout, considering I think he can knock out Chris Moutinho in the first. And really, when you look at Sean O'Malley. He's a first-round finisher. Knocks at, or he uh, finished Eddie Wineland in the first. Kinona's in the first. His fight with, uh, I guess those are grappling matches, but the Albert Kasakian fight in the first. He's more of a first-round finisher. Why would we be calling a second-round finish over this guy? But the first-round finish O'Malley is like minus 120. But the second-round O'Malley TKO is like plus 330. An infinitely better price tag. And so I'd be willing to wager, small little tinkle, another greasy theory, I'd be willing to wager that they watch the tape and they're like, this guy's not very good. And you'll, well, not very good. He's a pro MMA fighter, but you, you will be the superior athlete in there. You should be able to have your way. You should be able to beat him. And in the first round, 
just play with them. Let's just feel them out a little bit. Instead of jumping on the kill right away, let's find our range. Let's work our kicks a little bit. Let's get a little bit of cage time. Let's soften them up. Let's find that blow. And in the second round, let's just fold this kid over. If that's the case, you can get a 3-1 to one ticket on the O'Malley. Second round TKO. And if I was going to chase a round-specific prop, I got that gut feeling that it's like, you know what, he'll, he'll, he'll carry him into the second and put him away there. Cash his own ticket. Uh, but as far as the straight-up play goes, and it's not a great price tag, I get it. Is you just take O'Malley inside the distance by knockout more like, preferably. Minus 350 inside the distance, pretty much. Yeah, don't fuck the minus. Unless he really wants to work on his jiu-jitsu for some reason, which I hope he doesn't. Uh, yeah, yeah, probably more than likely the knockout. The knockout's minus 275. I believe you said you got it at minus 250. Yeah. Not a whole lot of meat on the bone, but it does seem like one of those plays that's probably going to hit. Because of the nature of a 10-to-1 favorite, and your best prop is him knocking a guy out, it's still only 250. This probably ends up being more in the pass category than a serious investment, but uh, I don't know anybody other than Mary Mutino, who I believe is his sister that's backing him. Outside of that, I don't know, I don't know anybody that's picking him, so I think uh, that we're going to agree there. I, I have a, a bit of a greasy theory, and I want your input on this. Um, remember that video that Sean O'Malley puts out in terms of calling out uh, Mr. Ricky Simon? He calls him Simon. Simon, yeah, duck, yeah, duck, yeah. Simon, whatever. I got a theory about that too, but go on. What do you got? But I think he put that video because he knew for damn sure Ricky Simone is not making 135 in, in a week and a half's time, right? There's yeah. absolutely no way. So I think for his own image, he just threw that name out there, threw that video out there to be like, oh, I'm ready for whoever fucking you guys want. You want to give me a wrestler? Give me Ricky Simone. I'm calling him out. But you know, for damn sure, this guy is a thick bantamweight who needs a proper training camp to take a fight on short notice. If I'm not mistaken, Ricky Simone has taken short notice fights in the past, but at 145. But, like and he offered to fight him at 45. And I was like, nope, nope, nope. 35 yep. or nothing. Exactly. Yeah. The, 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 he was only going to fight 35. I think yeah. Cody Stamen threw his name into the ring for 45. Everybody pretty much threw their name into the ring, right? I think the only guy that legitimately probably would have made 135 that threw his name out there was Brian Keller, who was like ready to go. And he could probably, he doesn't seem like a, a giant 135 or either. So yeah, I'm glad that we're on the same page, right? You're, you're calling bullshit on that, right? 100%, man. Because think about it. This is the way it would work is that your opponent falls out. So the UFC hits you up and they're like, okay, hey, the, these are the guys that we're talking to. These are the guys that we're offering it to. Here's a list of potential opponents. <clears throat> and that you would you would acknowledge at some point in that conversation, hey, Ricky Simone says he'll fight you. Are you are you interested in Ricky Simone? He says he'll fight you, but he can't make 35. He can only make 45. Okay. okay, perfect. I now know this knowledge and the rest of the world doesn't know this knowledge. So now I go on Twitter and I say, I want you, Ricky Simone. I want Simon. I want you. You go out. You act a fucking fool because you know he can't make 135. Exactly. So sure enough, an hour later, Ricky Simone says, uh, I can't make 35. Shit, Sean O'Malley was fucking right. He said he was going to fight him, dude. He was going to fight him. And the best part is three months from now, after he knocks out Chris Moutinho, when Ricky Simone says, Let's run it back. He'd be like, bitch, you couldn't make weight the first time. You had your yes. chance. And fucking move right on. I don't want to fight this guy. He's a little stocky power wrestler out of Oregon. Are you kidding me? So I true. Move right on. Yeah. It's all a great showmanship. And that's why Sean O'Malley, a guy who's really not accomplished anything at this stage, right? Let's you defeated Andre Sukumtas. And Thomas uh, Almeida, not a bad win. You know? Yeah, yeah, that's that's a legit win. And Thomas Almeida, this version of him is not the one from yeah. prior to the Cody Garbrandt loss, but it's still a solid victory. And I would say beating Eddie Wineland, a former WEC champion, yeah. he's not the same guy. He's got he's got okay wins, but he's a uh, he's a star. People like him. They're buying his merch. People are following him. He's got a persona. That whole persona is built on 
some theatrics. Connor would come in, talk some mad shit, back it right up. That's how he got to where he's at. Sean O'Malley comes in, talks some mid-level shit, and fights mid-level performances. But when he fights cans, that's when it's highlight reel. That's when he's smoking the weed on the Instagrams and, you know, selling the selling the clothing line. And, you know, the guy's actually, he understands marketing. He, I will give him yeah. that. He's got a really good grasp of it. And as long as they match him up soft, he will be able to sell lots of merchandise and sell lots of, you know, views and do well for himself. Once they start getting him some tougher opponents, I think that's when his game's probably going to fall apart. I will admit, he's a talented striker. I just... Yeah. You got to be... Uh, not only do you got to be a good striker, look at Shane Burgos. That'd be a good example as far as I'm concerned. This guy's an excellent striker, but he's not built to like get in there into a gritty firefight and come out on the other side. He's just not durable enough to get in those firefights. O'Malley's got the kind of striking. If he hits you and you topple over, that's great. But when he runs into these Marlon Veras and they take his best shot and they keep coming at him, that's when I see his game starting to fall apart. So Moutinho would have to come in as just some durable man on a mission i don't i don't think he might be a man on a mission but the durability he's going to get slept could get slept in the first if he fights too aggressive if uh sean's got his second round ticket on himself i think he puts him out in the second but regardless like this is a, a tough task and brilliant marketing strategy by sean o'malley yes he's pretty much becoming the ufc's version of mvp at this point right like just he has the skill set but they just keep you know, it's not his fault that Louis Smoker fell out. But even the Louis Smoker fight wasn't that like convincing for me to be like, you know, is this really a challenge for him? <laughs> Dude, I, I I agree with that, and I think again the UFC knows what they're doing. So they book him against Quinones. You know, you're gonna get a knockout. The Eddie Wineland fight. Sorry, my boy Eddie, but he fights with both hands right by his sides, man. Like, come on, he's gonna get knocked out. Um, they learn from the Marlon Vera fight. It's like shit. Let's not rush him. Let's go back. And so a win over Thomas Almey is legit. I would make a very strong argument that Lewis Smolka is a step down from Thomas Almeida, but that's the fight they book him, and he ends up with Chris Martino out of it. So I think they know what they're doing in that, like, yeah, maybe he could fight some of those better guys down the road, but for the time being, let him have some fun fights. But even the fans are smart enough to, nobody likes a 10-to-1 squash match. You might get a cool knockout out of it, but it won't, it won't feel right deep down. Well, what would feel deep down is if we cash this prop, and then who cares if Martino lives or dies, right? It's all about the gamble at the end of the day. <laughs> And so, yeah, O'Malley inside the distance, or by knockout. All right, let's move on to our next fight. That's enough sugar talk. We got Irene Aldana going up against Yana Kunitskaya. In terms of odds, we're looking at minus 120 for the Mexican and plus 100 for Kunitskaya. Uh, the line has been pretty much steadily moving in uh, with Irene Aldana originally around minus 165. And it seems like people are buying into that Yana Kunitskaya grapple fuck, which is probably incoming here against Irene Aldana, who's coming off probably you know the, the biggest spot in her career, main event slot against Holly Holm and she goes out there and gets pretty much beat everywhere right like great striking from holly Holm, as expected but it was the takedowns the ability to get her down and control her at times that really swayed those rounds in a holly Holm's favor now you got yana kunitskaya who's truly starting to come into her own as well landing takedowns and controlling girls and that's probably the way that she wins this fight against um Irene aldana it is without a doubt that Aldana has the better striking in this uh in this matchup but i think that kunitskaya's striking is serviceable enough for her to close the distance and eventually drag this to the ground and uh you know controller 
for a majority of the fight, which I think is their best way to win this fight. Uh, with Kunitskaya, her last fight against Katlin Vera, very weird decision, right? She she gave up almost nine minutes of control time in that fight, but she was dishing out damage the entire time. I believe she scored all, uh, close to 200-plus uh, total strikes compared to 37 alone from uh, Katlin Vera. So uh, it showed that Kunitskaya was the one kind of looking for the damage, even though she was getting controlled, which is why the judges ultimately ended up giving it to her. However, I don't think she's going to find herself on bottom here again against uh, Irene Aldana. I'd be very surprised if Aldana seeks takedowns and try to tries to grind out Kunitskaya in her own game, which is why I believe that Kunitskaya will close the distance, will be able to deal with the striking of Aldana, corral her up against the cage, maybe clinch Rucker up against the cage a little bit, and then eventually drag this to the ground and get that control time, top pressure, and some damage. I'd be surprised if there's a finish, so I'd be going with Kunitskaya via decision, which I think currently sits around, let me just pull that up, I believe it was plus 140 the last time I checked it. Uh, plus 160, so not too bad of a line there. That's the, the side I'm going to be going with. Uh, the last thing I'll say, that probably one of more, the more funnier matchups I've seen in the past is Kunitskaya against Stolia Renko, where Stolia Renko, you know, she wants to get the fight to the ground. So Kunitskaya is literally holding her up with her double underhooks, just trying to keep her up against the cage. But it's funny because more often in that situation, fighters are pushing the, their opponent up against the cage to get them to the ground. In that instance, it was just, I want to push you up against the cage so I can rough you up in the clinch. Not take you down because you have a you're, you're pretty much a Lithuanian Ronda Rousey with fucking eight submission victories out of nine wins. So I don't want to get caught up in that. But I will control you up against the cage for almost 10 minutes and win this fight via decision. And I'm thinking she's going to be able to do the same thing here against Aldana, who should struggle, who I believe will struggle in terms of getting away from the grappling advantage that Yana should have in this fight. So I'm going with Kunitskaya. Kunitskaya by decision at plus 160. How are you feeling about this matchup, brother? Don't really want a whole lot of investment in it because, uh, yeah, on one hand, I agree with the assessment. I think Kunitskaya's grappling is going to be the difference maker. If she can cut off the ring, if she can get a hold of Aldana, get her up against the cage, that would be the key. Aldana just got massively outgrappled by Holly Holm. It's a bad look. Yana Kunitskaya's got that game plan. She should be able to put it together. And you look at Tiago Santos, since they got engaged, Tiago Santos' career, whoa, right down. But her career has flourished going to American Top Team. And I do think that her, her game's getting a lot better. But I'm going to play devil's advocate to that point. <clears throat> we'll just look at four fights back. The Mary Renault fight. She got busted up in that third round. I mean, goes to the hospital, face, pictures of the hospital, face is just an absolute train wreck. She took a lot of damage in that fight. The very next fight with Aspen Ladd, she has TKO'd in the third. She, I just didn't think she looked good in that fight at all. The fight with unit with Yulia Storyorenko, my man Manpre calls her Stolia Stenko. She's 0-2 <laughs> she's in the UFC for a reason, and she has not looked good. This was not a very entertaining fight. This was not a very good fight. This is her holding a girl up against the cage for the better part of 15 minutes. And then she follows that up with spending pretty much the entire fight off her back. By the way, I cashed that ticket. I was very happy. Twitter was pissed. <laughs> they were so mad. How does Kevin Vieira lose being on top for the entire yeah. time? But she just wasn't doing anything. What I'm getting at is the Renault fight, you're taking on a 40-year-old. You got seriously busted up, took some damage. You follow that up by taking a very young and green fighter in Aspen Lad, who knocks you out. You follow that up by the story of Lenko fight was a stinker of a fight against a very low-level opposition. And, of course, you follow that up with a nice win over Ketlin Vieira, but not exactly the most ideal performance, per se. So, yeah, I've got some question marks there. Irene Aldana is a much better striker, much better boxer. She's a lot faster. She's a lot more fluid. She stays on the outside. She's going to chop her up. She's going to do some damage from the outside. It's whether Kunitskaya is able to grind her up against the cage and mix in some takedowns. Now, again, you go back to Kunitskaya. You know, uh, she was taken down three times against Ketlin Vieira. No takedowns there. Storlyorenko won. 
but of course she was trying to fall on her back the entire time. Nothing against Lab, one against Renault, five against Landsberg, and that's kind of the basis of her, her takedown numbers. But if you look at everything beyond 2018, it's not like she's a high-level wrestler. She's strong in the clinch, yes, but can I rely on her consistently chain wrestling or shooting multiple takedown times? That I'm not entirely sure of. Regardless of how this one shakes up, and again, I'm not a genius for telling you this one, this fight's going the distance, which is minus 250. <laughs> it's minus 250. I get it. But I don't feel comfortable in saying Kunitskaya by decision. I don't feel overly confident in saying Aldana by decision. I just think this thing is going the distance. Kunitskaya takes her down. She's going to win a decision on the basis of the grappling. If Irene Aldana is able to keep this fight standing, she'll chip her up. She'll beat her up. But outside of that one knockout win, uh, not really the most power-punching individual, I guess I should say. So probably goes the distance either side. Now, again, you got a 250. You can do with that as you like. But, yeah, maybe you parlay that. I don't feel nearly as good as about that one as the Maya versus I. That one's almost sure guaranteed going 15. This one, it's like, oh, you know what? Kutsky is hittable. And uh, I don't think she finishes Aldana, really. I think Aldana, if, if Aldana loses, it's just going to be frustrated off her back. Maybe she can catch you in Kunikaya. But either side, I, I don't think it happens. I think this thing goes a distance. Minus 250 again. It's not a very good price tag. I'm not telling you anything, information that you probably don't already know. But that would be the safest way of attacking this one. And maybe you can sprinkle that in with a parlay or something else you like just to uh, help get yourself some better value. All right, I like it. Now, this next fight, it seems like there's a lot of talk about it in the chat already, so I can't wait to hear what your thoughts are on it. We got Ty Tuivasa going up against Greg Hardy in terms of odds. We got minus 130 on Tuivasa, plus 110 on Greg Hardy, and it's pretty much been that line for the last couple of days now. Um, I th I think that this is one of those fights that Greg Hardy is going to stumble once again. Now, Ty Tuivasa hasn't really, you know, that's not a guy that I've really been big on a lot over his last couple of fights, but I feel like at a certain point, Greg Hardy was going to hit those, that level of fighter that is just going to be a little bit too much from that's going to show a little bit too much uh, resistance. And I think that Greg Hardy can be broken inside the cage. And I think that Ty Tuivasa is one of those guys who will definitely be able to break him. Now we saw in his last fight uh, with Marcin Tabura, he pretty much emptied his gas tank trying to finish Marcin in that first round. Not a good look goes into that second round gets finished he even tried to do the same thing against maurice green and it looked like he was huffing and puffing before he uh before he got that finish against green and i would love to see that fight go over you know for the next seven minutes if that were to actually reach a decision i think maurice green probably would have taken over and maybe even finished him at that point now greg hardy needs to go back to his ben sasoli type fighting right stick and move stick and move don't blow that gas tank don't think that you're going to get the guy out of there really quickly because I do think that Tuivasa is quite durable. Uh, I do believe he did get finished by Junior Dos Santos, but it wasn't like a, a flat lining or anything like that. I do think that he has some decent durability still left. Um, I think that he's going to try that, but I think that he's going to continuously get countered. I think that there's uh, the narrative that Greg Hardy is just going to kick his leg off, but Tuivasa has some decent leg kicks of his own. I think he'll be able to return some and maybe start to immobilize Greg Hardy as well. And I think the longer this fight goes, you know, I've seen arguments for both sides here where people think that okay Ty Tuivasa has a worse cardio or Greg Hardy has worse cardio I have of the belief that uh Hardy has the uh the worst cardio but also um uh the ability to be broken like I said earlier so I do think that Tuivasa will land counters I think he'll chop down his leg as well crawl him up against the cage wear on him slow him down and then start getting his own striking off eventually finishing him probably in the second or third round uh, so I, I'm taking Tuivasa here. I think he'll finish him probably in the second round. Uh, no high level of confidence here, but I feel pretty comfortable with that stance as I do believe that Tuivasa will break Greg Hardy. I just don't think that he has that 
the true fighter mentality, especially when he's fighting guys that are not Ben Sassoli. This is not Ben Sassoli that he's going up against. They might have similar traits, right? Like Ben Sassoli and Tyson Wilbasso physically, they probably look the same. But in terms of actual experience and fight capabilities, I think that Tuivasa has a lot more to show in terms of resistance than Ben Sassoli, who was just whiffing at air and just couldn't get anything going. I don't know if he was too scared in that fight, but Greg Hardy did a good job in terms of nullifying whatever Sassoli was bringing to him. But I don't think he's going to be able to do that against Tuivasa in this Spot. So I'm going to Ivasa, uh, to Ivasa by KO. Let's give you guys those props right now. Uh, to Ivasa by KO plus 175. To Ivasa round two plus 575. And to Ivasa round three plus 1000. How are you feeling about this one? Okay, yeah. gonna Again, going to agree with a lot of the assessments. But I am worried. Greg Hardy, for all of his flaws as a human being, the dude is a specimen as an athlete. And at some point, maybe he's not a fighter fighter. But at some point, I mean, his skills are catching up to that athleticism, and he's becoming more dangerous every time out. There's no denying that he trains at an elite level. Dude was at American Top Team, working with the best guys in the world. Leaves ATT, goes to Sanford MMA, works with the best guys in the world. He gets a lot of private lessons with uh, Dean Thomas and Sugar Rashad Evans. They're both high up on his skill set. And what you do see in the Marcin Tabuera fight, for four minutes anyways, is like, oh, shit, he's starting to figure it out. He looked good those first four minutes. He's nailing Tybura at will. Tybura, by the way, is a top five heavyweight right now. He's nailing him at will. He's hurting him. But he's fighting a different style that we're used to with Hardy. Hardy, way back in the regional, has got big power. Hardy in the UFC doesn't really got that big of power. He's more of a guy that's going to use the jab, stay to the outside, and land one-twos. He's not big, big on the finishing aspect. But against Tybura, he comes in. He tries to put him away. He damn near does. And then he gasses out. That, that, that's going to be his kryptonite moving forward. And I don't think it's an issue he's going to be sh- going to be able to shore up. So Tai Tuivasa probably gets him in some deeper waters. Tai Tuivasa probably puts him away there. Sure, but he- here's the issue I keep running into is that Greg Hardy is a better fighter than Tai Tuivasa for the first round. We're, we're banking on this. He's going to gas out. Not only are we banking that <clears throat> that we've got Greg Hardy that's going to gas out, we're also banking on Tai Tuivasa is going to have cardio all of a sudden. Because he's not really a guy that's known for fighting deep in the rounds himself. In fact, when Ty gasses out, it ain't pretty. Now, did he gas out against Stefan Struve when he knocked him in the first round? No, no, because people tend to knock out Stefan Struve in the first round. Did he knock out Harry Hunsucker? Did he gas out when he knocked him out in less than a minute? No, no. But really, he, at his core, is not really a cardio guy. You know, he, he goes out there, he chucks bombs, he drinks shoeys, he has a good time. When you look at Greg Hardy's training... It's with the best guys in the world, with elite-level coaches who are high up on him. When you look at Tai Tuivasa's training, he's in a small room with Mark Hunt, you know, getting worked over by Mark Hunt, actually, in a lot of the footage I saw. He's drinking beers as of three weeks ago. He goes to a lot of, like, pre-fight events. You know, uh, he lives a good life. He, he has a good social media following. He's funny. That's all good stuff. And again, maybe it's enough to beat him. But who's taking this more seriously? The natural fighter in Tai Tuivasa or the natural athlete in Hardy. I would say Hardy. And I would say if Hardy fights a good game plan and wasn't to gas out as early as he would, that jab, that reach, staying on the outside, the speed advantage, it's all going to be good stuff for him. So what I will leave you with is why I can't bank Greg Hardy is that it's not as simple as like he needs more experience in the fight game. He needs to get on a treadmill. He needs to work on sparring and going around. He's got asthma. He's massively asthmatic. And like, how are you going to do, how do you get around that? How do you yeah. get around that? That's the million-dollar question. Now, I can tell you from horse racing, the stuff you can give to open up the airwaves, but it's all like 48-hour cutoff stuff, man, or you get caught. Because just like a, an athlete, you can't be doing this shit. 
And so he would be the same way. Like he could take a Venny Pullman to open himself up, but come fight day, he'd be getting tested. He'd be no good. So he has no option. When he fought football, what would happen? It'd be like, sick play, Greg. Play number two. First play is 10 seconds. Second play is also 10 seconds. Great play, Greg. Like, <gasps> and they'd be like, you know what? I mean, it's fucking third and nine. So why don't you just come on the bench for a little bit? <laughs> we'll pump you full of oxygen. You can, you can do that. You can do that, right? Uh. In his MMA career, the Alan Crowder fight, he gets himself DQ'd because he's just done, dude. Yeah. Uh, the Sosoli fight, he physically is like, it's like, no, what are you doing? Uh, and that ruined that ticket right then. I don't care if it was a no contest after the fact, but it was like a no contest. Actually, you know what? They ruled it a win in the in the ring. It was a no contest yeah. like the next day. So I did. You, you did cash your ticket. Yeah, you cash your ticket. Thankfully, did cash. It was like, holy shit, dude. And then the Tybora fight, he, oh, the green fight, tires because of finish. The Tybora fight, tires doesn't get the finish. So that all just leads to bad news. And I would suggest if both of them are tired, I've seen Tuivasa tired, not that bad. Him versus Blagoy Ivanov, <laughs> he's oh swinging, he's yeah. swinging. He is unbelievably tired, but he's still going for it. Whereas Hardy tired, he kind of takes a, a step backwards. So again, the official play will be tied to Ivasa. I think this. there's multiple ways I'm going to attack this one, right? First way, I think live betting opportunity. I know this is a prop show, but this would be a good live bet for Tai Tuivasa. I really think Greg Hardy is going to beat him in the first round. Similar to the Tybora fight, he'll look good in that first. The money will come in on him. Oh, shit, it looks like he's uh, shored up his deficiencies. But when his cardio drops off, it drops off fast. So you might be able to live bet Tai Tuivasa and get an underdog or a plus money play after the first, right? The pre-fight bet, the over one and a half. Again, I think Tai can take out Hardy. But he's going to have to take him into some deeper waters. Not necessarily the two and a half, but the one and a half. And uh, Ty's got a cast iron chin, man. Like, good luck knocking him out. Did I mention he was sparring with Mark Hunt every day? And, like, <laughs> I, see, I seen him take some shots clean. He takes them. You mentioned the junior DeSantos knockout. He goes down, flash knockdown. Ref stops it, couple ground and pound shots. And right away, this dude's like, oh, shit. Yeah. Like, right away, wits back at him, still wants to fight. He's got a pretty good chin. I don't think Greg Hardy puts him out. We're looking for that one and a half. But my boy Manpreet likes these third round props. Plus 1,000, Tai Tui Voss around three. Let's go. Right, right. <laughs> so lose the first round. In the second round, track him down, tire him out, let him get through that round. And then in the, th sec in the third, sorry, when he's just tired, and you know maybe this is 1-1, I probably need to finish here. Just put the pressure on him. Put him away. Third round plus 1,000. If there was a third round guy on the card that I liked, I think it would be tied to Ivasa. Interesting. We're, just, we're drumming up that narrative that Hardy's asthma is going to kick in at some point and he falls over. But uh, yeah, I thought I thought that was an interesting way to maybe have like a, a, a punt sprinkle on it. Interesting. So the, this was the third round prop that you're aiming or circled at the beginning of the show. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I guess we got to play it now since we both pretty much said it. <laughs> All right, let's move on to the co-main event here. Probably the fight that I'm most excited about on this card. We got uh, former title challenger uh, Gilbert Burns coming in at plus 140, going up against Wonderboy Thompson, who had a uh, young spry, 38 years old. Probably looks like he might be getting a title shot, especially if he gets a victory this weekend. He's coming in at minus 160. And uh, I love me some Wonderboy in the spot, man. I I'm very skeptical about the rise of Gilbert Burns within this 170-pound division. Now, if you guys remember, he actually took uh, his first 170-pound fight in the UFC on short notice, stepping in to fight Alexei Konchenko after he had already beaten uh, Mike Davis a couple months prior. Steps in, beats Konchenko. Uh, seems like he's slowing down later in the fight. I don't know if it was just you or, or just me or uh, if you saw it as well. Then the Gunnar Nelson fight, that's another one where I felt like he was starting to slow down as well later in the fight. 
picks up two big ones there. Good for him. Then he goes out there and has a great stylistic matchup against Damian Maya. He gets into pretty much close to fatality position for Damian Maya. Damian Maya has his back, and uh, Gilbert Burns does all the right things, being a very high-level black belt himself, gets out of that position, finds himself on the feet, and lands a beautiful uh, left hook, I believe it was, that ultimately plants Damian Maya on his butt and then knocks him out. Then he gets the Tyron Woodley fight. Was five good rounds against no opposition, knocks down Tyron Woodley time and time again, close to finishing him numerous amounts of times. But he looks like an absolute beast, and everybody's riding his coattails now because he beats 2020 Tyron Woodley, who does jack shit other than move back and telegraph overhand uh, rights and doesn't even use his wrestling anymore at all. Then he gets a title shot after that, and people are betting him, you know, against Kamaru Usman. And I'm still on the Kamaru Usman train, who I truly believe. Nobody's going to dethrone that guy for a long, long time. I think the only guy that has the best chance to do so is Colby Covington, and he's already beaten him. But with Gilbert Burns, I think that him going up against uh, Wonderboy Thompson in this spot never fought anybody uh, like Wonderboy Thompson in the past. And yeah, primarily Gilbert Burns is a jiu-jitsu player, but his striking has definitely gotten better over his last several fights. But it's another thing going up against a guy like Wonderboy Thompson and try to be that effective with your striking. I think that he's going to be whiffing that air a lot here. We're in the big cage. Wonderboy Thompson is going to have all the room in the world to work his game plan. You know, more often than not, you see Wonderboy Thompson kind of getting pushed up against the cage uh, in terms of pressure, but he does such a good so job with like his, uh, his like misdirections and stuff, right? Like he he makes you think he's going one way, and then he goes the other and lands a combination on the outside of it uh, to to truly just put a stamp on that type of exchange. But his his footwork is amazing. We know everything that Wonderboy brings to the table here. I think he's going to put on an absolute clinic on what uh, on Burns on the feet here. The only difference here though is. Burns might shoot some takedowns, and that's something that Wonderboy Thompson hasn't really had to deal with since the Tyron Woodley fights. But I don't think that Gilbert Burns is this world-class wrestler that he's going to be able to one-track down Wonderboy, who obviously has great footwork and movement to get out of the way of any type of shot or anything where people are trying to push him up against the cage. And two, uh, Gilbert Burns, again, not a great wrestler. He's just not a great wrestler. He's just good enough when he gets the fight to the ground, but I think he's going to struggle to get Wonderboy Thompson down there. Uh, the last thing that I'll say, I know a lot of people are harping on one boy thompson because of that anthony pettis fight i think that is one of the most anomalous types of fights ever right like he gets knocked out in one fight freak knockout i don't think that's going to happen again gilbert Burns has good power don't get me wrong but i think that this is going to play out similar to the vicente luque fight you know training partner and corner man of gilbert burns they pretty much fight the same when they're in the striking realm but i do think that burns has a little bit more power and with luke that fight they thought that the leg kicks were going to be a huge uh reason as to why he's going to slow down one boy thompson and then let let his hands go but the the good thing about thompson is that he fights so well out of both uh positions that even if you chew up one leg he's just going to switch, switch positions and he's just as effective out of that other position but one thing that he does so well is that he fights in the opposite stance of his opponent so he makes that calf kick even harder he makes that leg kick even harder for them to reach and then he counters very well whenever they tr try to throw any of those kicks so yeah, I, I love Wonderboy Thompson in this fight. I know he's 38 years old, but it doesn't look like he's slowing down. He's having great performances against young guys. Jeff Neal goes out there and beats him over five rounds. Vicente Luque drops him numerous times and beats him over three rounds. I think he finishes Gilbert Burns here, who I truly think is, has a bit of a cardio issue, and it's going to look even worse when he's winging at air for the first 10 minutes, and I think Wonderboy Thompson finishes him late in this fight. As he's shown in his past couple fights, he can hurt and rock people still. I think it's been a long time since he's finished anybody, but this is going to be a perfect opportunity for him to you know take advantage of that and stamp him his name in this welterweight division to be like hey 
don't forget about me. I still deserve a title shot, and I'm probably one of the weirdest matchups that Kamaru Usman will probably ever have. Uh, Kamaru's never fought anybody like this, and I would love to see what kind of uh, game plan Wonderboy Thompson brings into that fight, and if he could dethrone the champion, he could definitely throw a wrench in his plans there. So uh, I like Wonderboy here, if you can obviously tell. I'm going Wonderboy inside the distance. Uh, I know a lot of people are taking it by decision. I completely understand that. But I'm going to chase the plus money a little bit here because I do think that there's an opportunity for him to get the finish. So Thompson by KO plus 265 and then Thompson around three plus 1275. I'm taking a shot on those. Hit me with that Wonderboy decision because I feel like that's the way that you're going to be going. Let me know what you think about this fight, brother. I got Thompson TKO plus 300. Oh, that's right. That's right. <laughs> okay, so yeah, he hasn't knocked out anybody since Johnny Hendricks, which was five and a half years ago. However, yeah. the power is there, man. He dropped George Mazadal, he dropped Vincente Luque, and he landed 171 significant strikes on Jeff Neal. Did he yield the knockout result in those fights? No, but those guys are real durable. Jeff Neal's a very durable guy. George Mazadal's a very durable guy. Um, they able to come back from it, but... Lesser dude's going to get toppled over. Now, here's the other thing that I like about him is that he's like a perfect striker, really. I mean, he's just so dynamic and in and out and it's very elusive. How do you get a range on him? He's very fast. He's unorthodox. The kicks are there. That straight left down the pipe has always been money for him. Uh, he does all these things extremely well. But I will admit, he is such a much, he's such a better counterpuncher than he yeah. is a guy that leads the dance. If you come at him, you are fucked. If you stand there and cause him to now have to come after you, you can counter him and you can have some success. Now think about this. Him versus Jeff Neal. Jeff Neal likes to walk forward and throw hands, right? And Jeff just walks straight. Can't even cut the cage off. Wonder Boy just dances around him. Does get caught in the fifth round, but, you know, very nice performance. But Jeff, he was able to counterpunch all night. Fight before that with Vincente Luque. He counterpunches all night. What's Vincente loved to do? Move forward, try to be aggressive. That plays into his hand. The fights where he doesn't look good, the Pettis fight, Pettis don't take one single fucking step forward. He stands there. He gets 10-8'd in the first round. He's getting 10-8'd in the second round. And he launches off the cage with a Superman punch and knocks him out. Like you said, anomaly. But you see, he did the right thing. He didn't chase him around the ring and get countered the entire time. He stood there. Now, Darren Till, that was a terrible fight. That was an unbelievably terrible fight. It goes 25 minutes, and the striking numbers are 38-30 to 30 for Darren Till. But you see, Darren Till does nothing. He just stands there. He just stood there the entire time and would counter, actually knock down Thompson off one of those counter lefts because he's causing Thompson to dance. Now, Thompson both fights with Tyron Woodley. Woodley's the king of not doing shit. He'll just stand <laughs> there all fucking goddamn night if it was up to him. And so, yeah, it causes Thompson to have to lead the dance. The second one sucks. The first one, I had it 3-2, Stephen Thompson with a 10-8 for Tyron Woodley because of the knockdown, causes it to be a draw. What I'm saying is there's an entire blueprint of if you attack him, you're, it's not going to go well. If you stand at bay, it'll be a boring fight, but you'll have at least some, some more success. Burns is not a stand-at-bay guy. Burns is a go-at-you type guy. That will play in, in Stephen Thompson's hand. Now it's MMA. Burns has got power. He just hurt Kamaru Usman. That's pretty dope. Uh, he knocked out Damian Maya, who even though he's in his 40s, it's Damian Maya. That's pretty dope. Thompson was knocked out by a 55er bum in, Steve, in, uh, in Anthony Pettis. That's a red flag. So I could see that narrative that Burns catches him, but this is MMA. Anybody could catch anybody. What the most likely scenario is, Burns tries to come at him in the first round. He's getting countered up all day. He gets desperate. He tries a takedown. Maybe he succeeds in the takedown, but it's just going to exert energy. And as he starts to slow down, and again, this is another point you brought up, Burns pretty much slows down in all of these fights. The only time he did not slow down 
was against Tyron Woodley, who didn't do shit. He doesn't exactly. do shit. So you know you're not going to tire against this motherfucker. He's not even fighting back. <laughs> but Gunner fought back, he tired. Konchenko fought back, he tired. That Cowboy Oliveira fight once upon a time, he fought back, he got tired. Now let's talk about Gilbert's chin. Not that good. You know, we, 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 yeah, okay, Usman drops him, and Usman's got some newfound power, broke Colby's jaw, and knocked out George Masvidal, but it's a stiff jab, topples him over. And he looked out of it long before that jab hit him. Like, he looked out of it near the tail end of the first round. I was like, oh, shit. You know, the Dan Hooker knockout. Dan Hooker's a 55er, right? Knee up the middle, plows him, knocks him over. And so Burns is a lot like my buddy Jay. Back in high school, big Jay sleeps with the finest women. But in hindsight, it's like, fuck, man. Those women weren't really good looking at all. Like, Jay's so... <laughs> Burns is the same way, dude. Fucking same way. When you look at it, it's like, oh, dude, be Tyron Woodley. Okay, yeah, well, let's not talk about that one then. But yo, dude, fucking beat Damian Maya. I mean, it was in his 40s, Damian Maya. And Damian's right at the tail end. It's not, it doesn't mean anything. I had sex with Jan Jameson. Now or then? <laughs> I'm going to tell you something, dog. Big fucking difference, right? Before that, he beats uh, Gunnar Nelson. Gunnar hasn't won a fight since. Gunnar's had very little success Such a bust. in the UFC. God, I thought he was going to be great. Alex Konchenko, despite yeah. a ballooned up record, had almost no success in the UFC and, in fact, is now getting jobbed out in PFL, right? We've got Mike Davis. Mike Davis is a 55er, took the fight on one week's notice, right? Prior to that, he had fought a three and one fighter four weeks earlier, an island fight in Florida. Yeah. Jumps from that to Gilbert Burns, a guy that's in the 170s, a much bigger guy. Yes, he has fought at 55, but he's just a big body. Okay, that's what I get back to. It's really not all that impressive. So you beat Mike Davis at 55 in short notice. Kinchenko no longer with the promotion. You got tired. Gunnar Nelson, I don't even know if he's with the promotion. He really doesn't like to fight anymore. Uh, you, you got tired. His, the, these grappling matches, Eves Edwards, Kazushi Sakuraba, Jake Shield. No, he's not competing at the ADCCs. He's not yeah. competing in the IBJJS. By the way, he did try to step up against Craig Jones and lost. And my, my boy Tommy Langacker, who's fucking stud, and he loses. His competitive grappling days are not at the highest level anymore. Um, I, I guess he just beat Rafael Lovato, so he's not shot by no means. All I'm getting at is that like, he got a title fight because there was nobody else. Kamaro is the champion. He's defeated the number one contenders. Colby's waiting on the sideline. Uh, we, let's take the number seventh guy in the division, and we'll draw up a narrative of it's like, well, they trained together, and Bur Burns has submitted him in the gym a few times. And then outside of that, you know, first first round he hurts him. Outside of that, it's like you did see a massive skill difference. And he might hurt Stephen Thompson again here. But if he does not finish him in that first round, you're going to again see a massive skill difference. So I think we've got a Burns who's got a ballooned up reputation. He's 34. I think I, I don't know. I just I'm not fully convinced on it. And I think he might be suspect durability issues, like tad bit suspect yeah. chinny. Thompson, you got a perfect storm here. Thompson, you got a guy that's got a long decision record. But he's been dropping good guys. He's been hurting good guys. He just, you know, the, the knockout just hasn't quite been materializing. If this was a five-round fight, I'd be take my money. And I'd live bet it after the first two because Burns could be competitive in the first. And if Thompson's going to lose this, it's going to be in the first. But it's only a three-rounder. That's a little more risque. But regardless, Thompson takes two and three at the very least, wins this fight. And I think gets an inside-the-distance finish. So that knockout plus 300. Again, it's not something that's historically happened a ton with him, but I think this is a perfect storm. I think this is a good stylistical clash for him. And at th 38, all I can leave you with is there's a very specific reason he's named Wonder Boy because like he's ageless, man. This guy yeah, does man. not fucking slow down. Guys his age, um, speed's the first thing to go. First, no, this guy's like as fast as he ever has.
And I will admit, him versus Usman is about the only... I want to see Usman Covington again, but... Yeah. It, there's very few interesting challengers, and it's all about style. You know, he, he poses something that when you fight him, you've never seen before. Your best bet is to bring Raymond Daniels into camp. And guys have tried that, you know. It's it's a different it's a different beast when you're taking on one. I'm pretty sure Vicente Luque did that too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's just like I'm gonna track this guy down. It's just like oh, sparring in like real life situation. It's sparring. It's just like he's gonna go this way and he's gonna go this way. So so what do you do? That's right, cut this. In the fight, it's like <laughs> this way, this way, pow, straight left in the fucking face. It's like okay, it's a little harder to gauge fucking the distance on this guy. Luque's the man. I think Luque Luque would rearrange fucking Burns. I think it's a walk in the park fight, Vincente Luque. Interesting. Now, and I'm a big Vincente Luque guy. Don't get me wrong. Uh, he's he's known to get hit a little himself too. So maybe Burns has that live first round knockout, but he he would put the pressure on him and break him down. I'm fairly confident in that. Seeing the way that Thompson's able to deal with those aggressive come forward guys, that's how he fights best. If Burns gives him that type of fight. Yeah, outside of three or four minutes in the first, where he will have a window to knock him out. This is not impossible. This this is mixed martial arts. We get that side of it. But outside of three or four minutes, I would say, uh, I would say Thompson. So I got Thompson pre-bet. I got Thompson plus three hundred, and I would be interested in maybe having another poke at Thompson a- uh, after the first round. If Burns maybe does successfully get a takedown in the first, if maybe he does kind of like Usman land a couple good punches in the first, and there's this perception of like, oh shit, he's beating Wonder Boy. He's got a notoriously bad gas tank, and Wonder Boy, unless you don't, if you don't work, he won't work either. But if you want to go out there and you want to fight, he. he that movement, man, it tires you out just trying to find him, right? He's in and out. Kick, kick, kick out. It's going to cause Burns a lot of frustration. I, I agree. I think he probably gets the TKO and that plus 300. I'm willing to have a little pokesy. All right. So I guess I don't feel as crazy taking uh, that one boy inside the distance, especially that KO line. And another thing that I'm kind of glad that you see, and I, I don't feel a complete nutcase about, is Gilbert Burns' sketchy, welterweight resume getting to that title shot and people thinking that he's much more than he actually is, in my opinion. I think this weekend we'll get rem- we'll be reminded, uh, you know, the level of Gilbert Burns and then Wonderboy. Uh, hopefully Wonderboy doesn't get flash knocked out, though. All right. That makes uh that brings us to our main event. We got 214 live viewers. Shout out to everybody watching us before the big UFC 264 pay-per-view this weekend. As a reminder, hit that like, hit that subscribe, and then show my guy Cody some love as well. Too. We got his YouTube channel linked in the description below. Click that shit, hit that subscribe. He's gonna be hitting you with some content over there as well. Too. All right, let's get to the main event this is what pretty much everybody is here for and goddamn, this is such a tough main event to break down even though we saw these guys fight six months ago one thing that i've been getting in my live chat all week is it's 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 a no-brainer this fight happened six months ago we saw what happened the same thing's gonna happen again this is mma folks this is mma this is you know we 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 can see these fighters fight each other so many times and there's always going to be a different outcome right junito santos versus cain velasquez right the first two fights i know it was a trilogy but watch those first two fights complete polar opposites of what happened um here I still think that we'll see uh, Poirier come out on top again. I do think, though, that I'll go a little bit deeper than it did the the second time around. I do think that we'll see them go into the third, fourth, and fifth rounds, maybe just the fourth, actually. And I think that Poirier 
you know, being that dog that's just been in so many fucking five round wars, four round wars, and still always comes out on top. Like the Dan Hooker fight, he's behind a little bit and fucking steamrolls through the last couple rounds and wins those rounds pretty heavily. The the Eddie Alvarez fights, the fucking Justin Gaethje fights, like it, it, he seems to get stronger as the fight goes on. And I just don't think that that's what Connor is is good at dealing with. He is so good at being the hammer earlier on in his fights because he has that death touch, that Celtic cross, if that's what you want to call it. He's always able to land around his points and they go down. But Dustin Poirier, his level of durability seems to have skyrocketed once coming to 155 pounds because he's eating crazy shots and still chugs forward like you just slapped him rather than actually punched him with the fucking bomb. Uh, uh, I think that's going to allow him to withstand what Connor brings to him. I'd be surprised if we see another leg-kicking approach from Poirier, but I'd even be more surprised if he doesn't throw it out there a couple more times just to see if he can be effective with it and also see how Connor has kind of prepared for that possible leg kick, right? I'm sure Connor's like, anytime he throws a kick, I'm just going to throw a straight left down the middle. I'm going to try to make him pay for it so that he doesn't continuously throw it. And then maybe Poirier comes up with something to counter that of his own, right? So... I think this might be a little bit more of a chess match than the first fight was, but I do think that the longer that this fight goes, it actually favors Dustin Poirier. And I know statistically speaking, Conor McGregor, what? I think he's gone past the, the second round three times or something, and he's 2-1 and one in those fights. Uh, the one loss, uh, I forgot what the one loss was, but either way, uh, or the, the Khabib fight, sorry, the Khabib fight was obviously the one loss. Uh, I, I do think, though, we see him slow down in fights. I do think that uh, he will have nothing but trouble uh, the later the fight goes, especially with his power starting to uh, slow down. That's something that he relies heavily upon, right, is the, the the intimidation factor of the power, especially if he lands cleanly on his opponents. And as that starts to deteriorate, the confidence of Oporia is only going to start to rise. And I think that's where he's going to be able to start, take over, uh, start to take over the later this fight goes. So rather than betting this pre-flop, I'd rather just... Wait for that first round. Let that first round go by. Take great. Poirier. Let that second round go by. Take Poirier again if he's still around uh, even money or plus money at that time. But I do think that the strongest rounds for Connor will be rounds one and two, just as it always is. And then after that, I think that's when we'll start to see Poirier take over. And then eventually Poirier find a finish. So I'm going to be going Poirier probably round four, round five. I'll go Poirier inside the distance because I do think that there's a possibility that he pulls off a submission as well. So I don't want to be left hanging picking a specific method of victory prop. Uh, so Poirier inside the distance plus 155. And then let's get a little crazy with it with the round props. It seems like the public is already hitting it a little bit, but Poirier round three plus 850. Poirier round four plus 1225. Poirier round five plus 1825. I'm going to be sprinkling a little bit of those as well too because I don't think this fight goes the distance. I think if there's any... <sighs> not calling it a lock of the night by, by any means, but I think that the fight doesn't go to decision is a decent spot to go out there and just, if you want to add a cherry on top of other par uh, uh, other straight pieces or parlay pieces, the fight doesn't go to the decision is probably the best spot in this fight in terms of what is most likely to hit. And obviously the, the odds reflect that, right? We got the fight doesn't go to decision currently sitting at uh, minus 280. I actually thought it would be closer to the minus 300 range, to be honest. So minus 280, I don't mind either. (laughs) You know what I mean. You know what I mean. Minus 350-ish. But uh, yeah, I I like Poirier. Poirier round four TKO is what I'm going to call. How are you feeling about this matchup, brother? Yeah, pretty similar. I mean, again, it's possible that Conor McGregor goes out there. He's had six months to change up the game plan. He normally fights very long. He's elusive. He's got that bounce in his stance. He's got almost like, it's almost like a karate style stance. And then the last time out, he fought like a flat-footed boxer. You know, have more, more of like a Muay Thai stance. So if he gets back to his basics, maybe it changes up something. 
One thing is that we know he's got the laser left hand. We know he's got some power. His power has not translated at 55 or 170 the way it was at 145 when he really just needed to hit you the one time. <clears throat> but with Poria, he's super hittable. He was hittable in the first McGregor fight. He was hittable in the second McGregor fight. He's extremely hittable in the fight one fight prior when he fights Dan Hooker and got seriously beat up bad for 10 minutes before that legendary durability kicks in. And again, I think that is the key here, is that uh, you, you can beat him, you can hit him, you can hurt him, but he just sticks around. And the longer he sticks around, he starts to get momentum and, and come back on, whereas Khan is quite literally the opposite. His best first rounds are the first round, the first two rounds. Outside of that, it seems like uh, guys tend to break him. All these guys that are durable, you know, Nate Diaz has got a hell of a chin on him. Khabib, he's undefeated for a reason. Uh, Dustin Poirier in that last fight. Like, these guys are durable. They'll take you some deeper waters. It seems like that's where Connor tends to fall apart a little bit. Um, you mentioned Dustin Poirier live for that submission as well. I think the second Connor McGregor brought up Dustin Poirier's wife, the submission was now off the table. <laughs> you're not, you're not going to fucking give him the, you're not gonna give him yeah. the satisfaction of being able to tap out and say, I'm going to end it for you. He's going to smash his head in. Likewise, in that same breath, Connor brought up his wife so that P head comes at him. You know, that's that's what he does. He wants you to fight aggressive. He wants you to fight reckless. He wants you to be mad at him. He talked a whole bunch of shit. You get in there, you're chomping at the bit, and then he's gonna try to intercept you. That's how he fought him the first time. He talked a whole bunch of nonsense at the press conference. He claimed I'm Mystic Mac, I'm gonna knock this guy out in the first. Got got him all heated, and then when Poirier came out there, he capitalized. One thing you'll notice from Poirier from recently, though, last couple of years, is that He's in such a good place with like his life. He's made some money. He's running a kick-ass charity that are doing awesome things. There are no problems between him and his wife. Uh, you know, he's winning these big fights. Training's been going good. Colby tries to get in his ear, but he brushes it off. You know, they, they bring up this, oh, you knocked out a, a guy in sparring. He brushes it off. Connor today at the press conference, although I haven't really watched it because we've been doing the show. Um, it's no surprise Connor talked a whole lot of nonsense, and Poirier shook it off. It just seems like he's not as easy to flank. There was a time where it's like he was angry. He was a tough kid from Louisiana with a chip on his shoulder. But those days are gone. He fights a lot smarter. And that was kind of the difference maker in that second fight. Connor would hit him, mind you, you know, full uh, full disclosure. I bet Connor the first time. I bet Connor the second time. So I'm one and one of those. I'm now officially flipping to Dustin Poirier. The key reason is that second fight, the rematch, Connor landed that left hand. It was there, and it didn't have the steam on it. And yeah. Poirier took it quite well. And he landed three of them, and then it dawned on me right away. It dawned in my head. He just took his three best punches. Or he took three. Connor, he's not going to up it. He's not going to, oh, he's going to throw this one twice as hard. It's a laser. It's precision over power. That's always been his motto. Well, he landed that shot on the money two or three times and did not get his attention. And, that, and then you could live bet Poirier bigger plus money after the first because on all three judges' scorecards, Connor McGregor won the first round. By most fans and pundits online, Conor McGregor won that first round. There was a great live bet opportunity there in Dustin Poirier. That live betting opportunity will be there as well. He's a slight favorite right now. He'll be a slight underdog after the first round. I think the tide starts to turn in the second. You think McGregor maybe wins the second. That's fine. You can live bet Poirier a second time after that. And then I think he takes it into his wheelhouse. The leg kicks will be there for him. That durability will be there for him. I just don't think... I, I, I don't know. I could be wrong. I mean, it happens all the time, right? But... Connor, in six months' time, the only thing that he could really shore up is that he's been usually fighting a year off, 13 months off, 14 months off, 15 months off. This is at least a quicker turnaround. His timing might be a little bit better. His cardio might be a little bit better. Physically, he looks in incredible shape. No doubt he's taking this seriously. I, I, I just think that the toughness really does mean something. How often do we take guys that we don't think have the durability edge, right? A big part of MMA gambling is you want a guy 
that can take your opponent's best shot still be there. He can overcome adversity. He can come back. And no matter what, he's going to fight for your dollar, right? Connor, there's been a number of occasions now where if you were betting him, you were like, ah, motherfucker, that guy quit. Ah, he got tired. He didn't take it seriously. Ah, he's, he had an excuse. Dustin Poirier is not that guy. Dustin Poirier will fight tooth and nail to the death. Five round definitely suits him because uh, once he takes that initial beating, he's going to rally through. So, I mean, you pretty much nailed everything I got. Uh, I, I, I put down Poirier by TKO, not the sub, not the inside the distance. I think he gets it done with his hands, plus 175. But Poirier round three, Poirier round four. I, uh, I agree this one goes longer than the first, or the, the second fight. I think it hits the over one and a half, but that's only minus 185. It's not a great price tag. It maybe sees the end of the second, but I don't think it. I, I don't think it ends in the first. I don't think it ends in the fifth. It should happen two, three, or four. My feeling, my gut says three or four for Poirier, and that that's when the damage will will eventually accumulate and take up count. So that that's pretty much it. Part of me, I'm cheering for Dustin Poirier. I'm betting Dustin Poirier. He seems like a very likable guy. How, how do you not like Dustin Poirier realistically, right? But uh, as far as business goes, the UFC, the sport of MMA, they would benefit a lot more from a Conor McGregor win. If Conor McGregor goes out there and sleeps this guy, gets out in the cage, says some crazy shit, promos the next big mega fight, <laughs> that, that, that's actually good for us. You know, That's good for the show. That's good for the viewership. That's good. If Conor loses this fight and disappears, is Poirier selling a million pay-per-views against Charles Oliveira? No. No, he's not. Is he selling a million pay-per-views to fight Justin Gaethje again? Sick fight, but no. No, he's not selling the, the sport kind of does need Connor. If not Connor, we need we need Ronda Rousey. Oh, but she's gone. We need John Jones. There goes his career. <laughs> uh, we need stars, man. We need I, stars. So. Dude, I think that even if Connor loses, though, there's a couple of big fights, right? Especially the Nate Diaz fight. Like, you could definitely make that trilogy and he'll still sell a fuck ton. I think Connor doesn't need What's to win. sell a fuck ton? What's the definition of that? Probably like, more than he sells this weekend. I think he would start. So. Nate Diaz is just. I'd say Nate Diaz is a bigger name than Dustin Poirier, and people know that knows that know that these guys have a a history. Think of the lead up again, right? Like I think that you would still be able to sell a good ton of money. Like there are still money fights out there from in my opinion jorge masvidal another money fight for him that he could possibly take. Right? I don't think it's pertinent on him winning. I think it, even if he loses, that's, that's fair. But again, I think you'd look back and say, "Oh, we got a guy that's one in three in his last yeah. four MMA fights, and he has the loss to to Floyd Mayweather in that mix." Taking out a guy Nate Diaz that hasn't won a meaningful fight in a fucking long ass <laughs> since time. the last time he beat Connor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So how how do you headline some big massive show with a guy that's a tough fan favorite loser, right? And I say, I say loser as in losing. Yes, yes, yes. Guys yes. are badass. Everybody loves him, right? So I don't, I don't mean to be like disrespectful. Yeah. I just mean he's a journeyman fighter in terms of his record and his skill set, but is a massive fan favorite. Taking on a guy who is now falling into journeyman status yeah. and has an advanced skill set. So is it a fun fight? Yes. Do people want to see it? Yes. But people would watch him box Pauli Malinaji. Does that make it a good fight? Not necessarily. And I think if he had done it two years ago, people were in it. Paulie's talking shit. Connor's talking shit. It means something. Now, Paulie hasn't done anything. Connor's not doing anything. It's not fun anymore. Him versus Nate Diaz, it's fun. It's fun with Nate winning fights and Connor winning some fights. Neither guy are winning. It's, it's still a fun fight. It's still an interesting fight. But you know why you watch it? You watch it because you want to see Nate Diaz beat that ass, right? Yeah. That's, that's why you watch it. You're not watching it because there's anything meaningful on the line. And again, I go to Floyd Mayweather. Had Floyd lost to Victor Ortiz? Had he lost to Andre Berto? Had he, had he lost to Marcos Maidana the first time? Which, fuck, dude, that was a close fight. That was close. Th there wouldn't be no Floyd, you know, grand aura. The, it's, the undefeated record meant something. 
Connor is coming to the UFC, he's dicing fools. It meant something. People were talking about like, dude, him, Joe Duffy in a rematch would be sick. Because it was just like, <laughs> oh, well, Joe Duffy had beat him. Yeah. Now it's like, who cares that Joe Duffy beat him? So have a bunch of people. He's not the guy he used to be. And I, you know, I hate to agree with Colby Covington, but he makes a point. If Dustin goes out there and beats Connor again, what does that really mean for him, right? He didn't fight the number one contender. He didn't fight the number five contender. He didn't. He opted to turn down a title fight with two of the best guys on the planet. He, he I, the, this, now he's he's chasing the fun fight. He's chasing a legacy fight. He's chasing a, a money fight. But what does that? What does it really mean, right? When we break down his next fight after this, we'll be like, will we be like, oh, dude, that trilogy match versus Connor? He looks sick. It was like, yeah, almost expected. But the fact that Connor's such a big fan favorite, you're still getting a very bettable price on 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 Dustin Poirier, especially how the last one ended six months ago. Here he got tired, his leg got buckled, and he got KO. That's a trifecta as far as I'm concerned. And you're still getting a minus one twenty five price tag on Dustin Poirier. Sweet. And the only thing sweeter than that is it'll be a plus money price tag after the first. And that's when hopefully uh, DP gets going and. Um, Pulls a fight into his aspect. So I know that's not the popular opinion in terms of like every time I've ever picked against Connor, uh, people tend to shit on me. I know that he's a fan favorite. I know he talks a good game. But logically speaking, as a capper, we got to go with what we know. And what we know from six months ago is Poirier has his number, can take his shot, is in the better shape, has the more advanced skill set. And that's not even, yeah, re wrestle. Re mix in the wrestling. Take him down, tire him down, ground and pound him, then finish him. Like, those are all things that he could bring to the table. And again, this is MMA. It's the greatest sport in the world. It only takes one shot. Connor kind of known as a guy that could have that one shot. But uh, I, I got to go with Dustin Poirier to get the job done again. All right, all right. That brings us to our favorite segment of the night. And I'm going to try something, Cody. You're going to have to help me out here a little bit. I have the PowerPoint up. Let me see if I can actually get it on the screen here. And you are going to let me know if it actually appears or not. Because I'm going to – how does that look? Can you see it on the screen? I cannot see it on the screen. You cannot see it on the screen. That is absolutely great. Okay, I am not going to share it then. <laughs> Screw it. Okay, we're just going to have to go off the top here. Unfortunately, the HDMI on my laptop is not allowing me to get my second screen going, so I cannot share my PowerPoint screen, which gives you guys our three best bets. But one thing I did want to let you guys know, for the ultimate weigh-in show tomorrow, the third guest is still up in the air, so I'm not going to name him, but the other two guests that I got lined up for you guys, I got Mr. Nick Kalikas, founder and owner of MMA Oddsbreaker, one of the OG uh, handicappers, or sorry, uh, odds makers in the MMA space. You guys obviously know him from UFC on the line as well. He has a show on Fight Pass. And with him, I do have his co-host from that show, Mr. Yanni the Greek. Yanni and Nick are both going to be on the show tomorrow night uh 9 p.m eastern the ultimate weigh-in show we're going to be doing it at 9 p.m eastern over here i do have a surprise third guest i wish i could have confirmed him by now but i don't want to drop his name unless he's 100 confirmed and he's does not confirmed his, does his name rhyme with burial shmermani it does not because <laughs> he does not predict fights he did not predict fights i know, I know. I know your thing. boy and it was a big guest I, I was like yeah nick's sick and honestly i know johnny takes some shit um johnny's a good dude and he uh, he gets it he understands it as far as a gambler standpoint, that's going to be a great perspective to have. And uh, yeah, I hate to say I'm not on the all-star lineup, but that's a fucking good lineup, <laughs> dude. Straight up. I'll be watching. Hey, uh, if your Friday night is free and my third guest uh, flops on me, maybe you can jump in and, and do some last-minute saving. But I won't hold you to that. We'll see what happens. But uh, I will say this. It is an active UFC fighter that a lot of people respect. So I'm just going to put it out there. 
I, Cody, I'll let you know off air. But for the public, you guys will have to wait till tomorrow to see yeah, whether this guy actually jumps in or not. All right. In terms of best props, again, I apologize that I'm not able to get the graphic up for you guys here, but I will kick things off as always. The first one that I got is Jessica I via decision at plus 235. Love that line there. I think it's going to be a close competitive fight. think that even the money line is way off, and I think it has a ton of value as is. But let's be honest. Jessica is not even finishing her lunch at this point. So Jessica I via decision is the way to go, plus 235. Uh, next up, uh, Wonderboy Thompson via KO, plus 265. Love that line as well. I think Gilbert Burns is going to be whiffing that air a lot, probably shoot for takedowns that are not going to be successful. And then uh, Thompson will be able to light him up for some nice karate in that third round and finish him. Third round prop is obviously very live at plus 1,000, but I'm going with Thompson via KO, plus 265. And then lastly, I'm going to go with Yana Kunitskaya via decision at plus 1,000. I think she's going to be able to get the better of Irene Aldana here, get the grappling going. And um, yeah, I, I think she controls Aldana. I don't think Aldana will have the power to knock out Kunitskaya, which will allow Kunitskaya to remain serviceable enough in the striking to get her grappling going, her clinch game going. And just be successful on that end. So once again, I via decision plus 235. Thompson via KO plus 265. Kunitskaya via decision plus 160. Cody, you're up, brother. I always start you guys off with like one of those like minus 170s, minus 145s. They've been hitting a lot of the time. Uh, don't got nothing on this one. We're going <laughs> with plus money the whole way. And yeah, it's a decision. It's a decision night for these props, anyways. I think Brad Tavares by decision plus 140. Again, Amari Akhmedov, both Tavares and Akhmedov, decision guys. Feel comfortable this thing's going to decision. Akhmedov's going to struggle to take him down. Even if he does, he's going to tire after the first round from overexerting himself. Brad Tavares, two and three. Takedown defense looked very good against Antonio Carlos Jr., a man who now fights in the PFL tournament at 205 pounds. That's all I need to know. Brad Tavares looked improved for a 33-year-old in that one aspect. Takedown defense, keep this thing standing. Box him up, 140. Give it to me. Max Griffin, 140. Same game plan here. Go out there against Carlos Condit. Use his striking a little bit. Mix in those takedowns. Carlos Condit taken down 56 times in his UFC career. Has a 39% career takedown defense ratio. If you play him like the legend... If you want to fight this guy like the legend that he is and have an entertaining fight for the crowd and give him too much respect, your mistake, you lose. If you fight this guy smart, I mean, you've got to make some of those takedowns. And Griffin, for a guy that's not known as a wrestler, not known for a grappler, his wrestling's more than good enough to get the job done. I think the jab's going to be effective, makes in a few takedowns. Griffin plus 140. We've got back-to-back -back 140s. Let's take a little bit of risk here. We're going with a, I don't know why it's not there. It was plus 250. Why did I send it to you? Um... Oh, yeah, Tapuria. Tapuria by decision, plus 250. Again, with Ryan Hall, it's like he's got that look of a guy that probably can't take a punch, but he knows how <laughs> to stay defensively sound. He knows how to survive. He knows how to just flop to his back and not take any more damage. And with Tapuria, as good as he is on the ground, what are you going to do? Follow Ryan Hall to the ground? Like, is that really the path? More than likely, you back up. You look at the ref. He looks at you. You kick the leg a few times. The ref says, okay, stand up. You stand back up. You throw a couple of kicks. He rushes you. You sit back down. It's all stuff that leads to a decision. Now, I'll admit, Hall is a bit of an overachiever. He's won some fights in the UFC that, you know, he's almost always the underdog. No one really expects anything out of him. But this is a little too much. Uh, Tapuria is legit. I think this kid's going to crack into the top 15, top 10 of the division. He's still young. He's still improving. The power is going to get there, just not on this night. Not enough to put away Ryan Hall. So Tapuria gets the win, but gets that win by three-round decision, plus 250. I like it. Perfect world. I want to go three for three. We hit two to three all the time. I would really love big card, good viewership, lots of good support this week. Love all the positive vibes. I love to hit a three for three, and they're all plus money this time, including a 250 to cap it off. So uh, that's the goal, my friend. 
I love it. I love it. So there you guys go. Just a reminder, all three best bets are I via decision plus 235, Thompson via KO plus 265, Kuninskaya via decision plus 160. That's on my side. And then on Cody's end, Tavares via decision plus 140, Griffin via decision plus 140, and then Tuporia via decision plus 250. All right, Cody, that's a wrap on the show. I'm going to let you give you your platform on the back end here if you want to say anything. And then I'll wrap this thing up as always, brother. Yeah, I mean, it's same old me, same as always. You can hit me up on Twitter at CJ Saftik. I'm on YouTube now. The channel is CJ MMA. Again, like, I'm a one-man show, so, like, I need time codes on those shows. I need some better little thumbnails. Uh, I need to probably promote a little bit better, but it's all work progress. We're all going to get there. The main thing is if you give me a subscribe now, it at least lets me know the interest is there, the support's there, which I always do appreciate as always. But you can hit me up on Twitter. You can hit me up on YouTube. Apparently, I launched an Instagram, although I'm really not too fond. What? Just, I know, man. It's not you. me. I fucking got a horse that's raising on Sunday. I got, a, I got a card. I got a card I'm trying to put Shout together. out to your horse, by the way, on a fucking win streak. Talk about a lock of the night. That last one was a lock of the night, for sure. The the first race, I was like, I think I'm going to be oh, good at here. The second one, I slipped up the inside and just got up the win. I was like, oh, shit. That third one, it was like... <laughs> Walk in the park. Unfortunately, this Sunday, I'm moving up two weight classes and uh, taking on a few heavy hitters. I think I'm going to get a check, top five finish. I really think I'm going to hit that top three. And, of course, there is a possibility that I could win this race. But I'll at least be paying eight to one, ten to one anyways nice. for a win this week. So, like a fighter, you can't just middle around with the – I wish I could, eh? It pays three grand every time she wins. So, I was like, I, oh, wish, yeah. I, could, I wish I could fight that competition forever. But – Unfortunately, she she's moved up deservedly so. So, uh, if if the fighters on Saturday night give me half the effort that Woodmere Rollily does, I'll be happy because uh, she's a little grinding. She's definitely caused me a lot of uh, joy over the last month. So yeah, racing horses, Twitter, YouTube, matchmaking. A man that wears many hats, mostly just this one, the Brixton one and the DraftKings <laughs> one. <laughs> but you know what I mean. I always said when I was a kid, they were like, "What do you want to do someday?" Uh, people would be like, oh, did you want to be a doctor? doctor makes $100,000. He's like, wow, fuck that. Like, you want to be a lawyer? L- lawyer makes $100,000. My uncle's a lawyer. He's a drunk. Nah, I don't want to be a lawyer. Right? <laughs> Dude, it's a tough job. Criminal defense lawyer? I'm sure. Guy, guy tells you he did some shit. I don't even want to talk about it. Guy tells you, I did it. Your job's to go to court and prove that he didn't do it? <laughs> fuck, man. Talk about a bad job. Anyways, like, what else you want to do? Like, what else is a good job? When I was a kid, I'd be like, oh, Playboy photographer. But the iPhone killed that <laughs> fucking gig, right? That gig's no longer existed. Instagram thoughts, baby. Right. So when I was a kid, they'd be like, what do you want to do? And I always said, like, I want to work four or five jobs and just get paid forty, fifty thousand dollars at four or five different jobs and make two hundred thousand dollars. That that's me. And so that's where my life's headed now. It's like I got my fight network gig, producer there, editor there. It's a salary pay. Love the job there. Work as many fights, live events. Fits my lifestyle. The horse has been going good, but let's not even factor that in. Doing some matchmaking, doing the shows. DraftKings just sponsored us for the Dogger Pass podcast. Life's coming together, but it's, it's the way I envisioned it when I was a kid. Worked three or four jobs. And I'm okay with that because if my life consists of watching fights and horse racing, uh, outside of being born in 1950, I'm pretty sure I was supposed to be born <laughs> in 1950. Outside of that, life's good. Life could only be better with a little PRP action and some prop hits. So uh, let's do it Saturday. Thank you for everybody joining the chat. Thank you for everybody that watches the rerun episode. And uh, yeah, like Locke always says, you can give him a like, give me a like, subscribe to both of us if you haven't already. And yeah, we really do appreciate you guys taking the time as always.
I do just want to say there is a absolutely golden merch idea right there for yourself if you ever want to do it. Old school Cody Saftik with the mustache, with that weird like fucking stance and all that. I think that would sell right off the shelves. Is what I'm gonna say. All right, uh, appreciate everybody that joined the show. As always, two and a half hours deep here. Big UFC 264 card. It deserved all the time that we gave it. Uh, shout out to you guys. Cody's channel is linked in the description below. That's where you guys can click on it and subscribe there. So 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 show my guys some love. And obviously our Twitter handle is at MMALOTN for me at CJ Saftik for my guy. And that's it. Again tomorrow night, 9 p.m. Eastern. Me, Nick. Kalikas, Yanni the Greek, and possibly a fourth surprise guest. Hopefully he can make it. You guys will find out tomorrow, 9 p.m. Eastern. See you guys then for the ultimate weigh-in show, and good luck on your best this weekend, fellas.